mythology friends. I'm Kay. And I'm Other Jen. And we're the Drunk Mythology Drunk Gals. Mythology Gals. Wow. <laughs> you were having like a little anxiety attack trying to get that <laughs> in under the before you started laughing, before we started laughing again. Yes. Oh my goodness. This is, yeah. Oh, fun, fun, fun. What a day. Some of the oil the podcasters were rusty. (laughs) So very. very. Yeah. It has been a hot minute. Um, Yeah. But between dogs, kids, parents, trips, home renovation, and emotional states that land somewhere between burnout and hysterics, we kind of had to take a bit of a step back. Yeah. We didn't mean to, but that's how it worked out. And so we're calling it a hiatus and that's my story and I'm sticking to it. There you go. (laughs) But yeah, we needed to regroup, figure some stuff out and frankly, recharge. (laughs) Oh yeah. We desperately needed some downtime. And I I don't think we even got the downtime. We didn't. It was just that It was slightly less hectic time. (laughs) Yeah. And not even that for you. Like you were just like, oh, good. It's just one more thing that I actually off my list of impossible things to achieve. Oh, you forgot to mention jury duty. Oh, jury duty. Yeah. That was part of what like threw us off. Yeah. That was in there too. That was in there too. Yeah. Yeah. And I got juror number 11. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. (gasps) Don't, don't. Yeah. So, (laughs) law and order. (laughs) But, you know, we're we're coming back. Yeah. Ready or not. You and And we'll have to do an episode on, like, jury duty and stuff like that. That's a great topic. Ancient jury duty. Oh, I want to hear all about it. Yeah. (laughs) And compare notes. (laughs) Well, trying to get out of jury duty ever since jury duty wasn't invented. So let's just put it that way. There you Um, go. Yeah. Yeah. But so we're coming back starting in June and which is tomorrow. But to (laughs) kick it off. Yes, we are unlocking a Patreon episode, but not just any Patreon episode. This Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. This is one of our most infamous lit crit hours. And hours and hours. I apologize now. (laughs) I have no regrets. I do not apologize. Okay. No regrets, but I'm just pre-apologizing. Anyway, we picked this (laughs) lit crit especially for this week because guess what I did last Friday? You washed your hair. Oh my God. I wash my hair every day. You put gas in the car. Um, unfortunately, that's something I have to do on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> that's not special for last Friday. Try one more. You had lobster for dinner. Oh my God. No. That's that's unusual. Where the hell did you come up with that guess? Because I was rolling out the lobster red carpet for what you actually did. Yes. I saw Disney's live action Little Mermaid. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. Guess how many times I cried. Did you even stop crying? Isn't it just like one log sob? I did stop. There were moments of not crying. Well, you were hunting for another tissue. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot to take tissues. Oh, my God. you went, you knew. You I, knew yes. what this does to you. 
absolutely. I took my um, I movie theaters. I get hot and then cold and then hot and then cold. Yep. So I I take a blanket with me. I took my Little Mermaid blanket. Of course you did. Yes. I absolutely did. And I have to wash it now. Because, because it's covered in tears I, and snot. Because I cried on it. <laughs> so there is an inside joke that we are sharing here about why Jen cries anytime anyone mentions the Little Mermaid. And we're going to let you in on this joke in this episode. And oh, actually, we yeah. go even more into it in some of the deep dive episodes we've done over on Patreon. Yeah, um, we probably, well, we've hinted at it, but we need to warn them a little bit more about this particular episode, don't you think? Is warn really the right word? Yes. Really? Yes. Definitely, yes. <laughs> Fine. This is your warning in place of our usual disclaimer, which will be back next week, bitches. So, Jen, get your clipboard ready. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> in a lit crit hour, we tackle a fairy tale or a folk tale. We read the original text, warts and all, mm. in this case, overblown Victorian prose. Um, but yeah, you know. We just go with the translation, earliest translation that in English that we can find. And yeah. um, we may do voices. I we don't remember if we did voices in this one or not. I feel like we were experimenting. I think you're right. We were, because we had done the Firebird ones. We did Russian okay. fairy tales back. Right. Like we did a whole segment. And then, yeah. Um, and then we're just like, why are we even pretending to be serious about this? <laughs> um, but yeah, we may make a, inappropriate snarky asides. And at least in this episode, Jen might take quick breaks to ugly cry. Oh, yes. <laughs> After our performance. Is performance the right word? Um, yeah, it probably is. Yeah, I think it I think it really is. Yeah. So yeah. um, so after the performance. Kate goes into full Professor Kate mode. It's yeah, You've it's been a it. while. It's been a while, but she goes into full Professor Kate mode. She discusses the history of the story, the author, the social context, what's going on in the world, the impact on popular culture, and any other details that she can find in order to ruin the innocent charm of the story. <laughs> Everyone has their purpose in life. You know? Uh, um, yes. Some people are here to build up. Some people are here to tear down, you know? <laughs> it's like a yin and yang. Um, we always learn. We always learn. Yes, exactly. So. But if you've listened to any of our Dracula episodes from last October or our episode about Charles Dickens and then the Christmas Carol episodes from December, you'll know what we're talking about. And mm -hmm. if you haven't, you should go check those out. And we should also mention that because it's Patreon, we let loose. Oh, yeah. More than we usually do on our main feed. And that is saying a lot. Yes. <laughs> Um, there's drinking, distraction, dogs, and absolutely no attempt at decorum, which means these episodes tend to go a little longer. I'm suddenly wondering if I revealed anything in this episode that I was like, oh, it's just Patreon. We only have three subscribers. It's fine with those three people to hear this. And we're about to unleash this. <laughs> you know... It 
(laughs) But yeah, these go long. But hey, it's value for your money. That's right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Patreon. We have subscriptions available for Patreon. Mm -hmm. They're several tiers. Uh, $3, $5, $10. And with each level, you get episodes early without ads, which we are going to start putting some ads in, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as you get deep dives. You get snorkels, (laughs) which are shorter deep dives. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Lots of lit crit hours. Um, We have some WTF. (laughs) (laughs) videos yeah where we're like i wonder how this video function works (laughs) um yeah there's also discounts on merch uh let's see what else do we have up there um we mentioned merch oh the divine title oh that's right you get your own drunk mythology gals divine title Kate usually comes up with some very funny ones. Um, so it's going to be yeah. specific and personal to you. So when you join, tell yeah. us a little something about yourselves and you'll get a shout out on our main episode, letting the world know that you are now <laughs> divine. Yes. Um, the best part, though, we have stickers. That's right. When yep. we do an episode that goes extra, extra long. We will send you an I Survived sticker over on Patreon. You have to be a Patreon subscriber. So even though we probably talk about it in this episode, Mm -hmm. you got to be a Patreon subscriber to get a sticker. Exactly. I I think we might mention it. I think this might have been the first sticker episode we did. I don't remember. I don't know. Maybe. But, you know, our patrons got a special I Survived Lit Crit Hour 9 sticker for this episode. And we're now on Lit Crit Hour 12, Part 3. Oh, my God. (laughs) And it's going to be a mega sticker by the time we're done uh, with uh, Lit Crit Hour 12. In fact, it's probably going to be a roll of wallpaper by the time we're done. So all of this is just to invite you over to Patreon to check us out, patreon.com slash drunk mythology gals. And um, yeah, that is patreon.com slash drunk mythology gals. Yeah. So and you want to give the little fairy tale intro? Oh, yes. You're going to make me cry just on this. Oh, my God. <laughs> Once upon a time. Les poissons, les poissons. How oh, I love les poissons. Seriously? To serve little fish. First, I oh, cut my off goodness. their heads and I pull out their bones. Ah, mais oui, ça c'est toujours delish. Oh, my <laughs> word. All right. All right. On with the show. <laughs> Hey, Drunk Mythology friends, I'm Kate. And I'm the other Jen. (laughs) And we're two of the Drunk Mythology Gals. Drunk Mythology Gals. Did you like forget what was going on? What happened there? 
nothing happened. I said, I'm Kate, was... and I'm waiting for you to say, and I'm the other Jen. Did you not hear me say it? I, I heard you say there was like a pause. You must have cut out or something. Oh, dear. <laughs> Odin's Should already we try that fucking again? with us, and we haven't even gotten into the, the script. <laughs> yeah, let's... let's uh try that again hit so, the rewrite re- uh, see i can't even re-rot. talk now <laughs> the rewind <laughs> so it's about at a minute that we're going to restart got it all right <clears throat> three two hey drunk mythology friends i'm kate and i'm the other jen and we're two of the drunk mythology, drunk mythology gals. <laughs> there was still a weird pause right after I said I'm Kate. It's so weird. I don't know what's going on. We're being messed with today, big time. Yeah, we're just yeah. So um, we're just gonna. Who knows how this is gonna turn out? <laughs> oh, I know exactly how it's gonna turn out because I wrote the script. Oh, oh my shit. god! Oh yeah. So you know oh. what? You know what this is? It's a lit crit hour. Yes, yes, it is. And, and it's we're doing a fairy tale. Yay! Yeah, we've and been do yeah. all kinds of fairy tales. Yeah. Yeah. So are you going to have me read stuff? Yes. Um, I think this story is actually long enough that we should probably alternate paragraphs. Oh, fun. Interesting. Because it's a lot. (laughs) Okay. So I'm glad I fixed myself a drink. I Yeah, you are. um, I am still working with... OG on some cocktails that we're experimenting with. I don't know Uh how much detail we've revealed on the podcast about it, but yeah, OG and I are playing around with some cocktails. Um, We can reveal all that down the road, but I now have in front of me some derivative of a Moscow mule. It has ginger beer with black rum. So it's Black kind of like an strong. Oslo mule. Is that what that's called? No, but like, I'm just saying if it's not a Moscow mule, it's an Oslo mule. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to, I'm, I'm avoiding going to talk about the political environment right now. I'm just, I'm going to move on. I, I, I'm tempted y- to, to make a comment, but I'm going to not I'm just really there. sad. I'm just really, yeah. really sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad my vodka comes out of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> what are you drinking? <laughs> um, so, I, I, I didn't have a particularly good night's sleep. So, I'm Aww. juicing up with mango juice. From Trader Joe's, and it's okay. the The tinniness of the container is kind of getting it a little bit. Oh, but then I okay. have a full, my full uh, might be whiskey cup full of whiskey. Oh, yeah! So I'm like pepping up, trying to get my energy going. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, awesome. it's going to be. I'm having uh, to message OG because she's sending me drink pictures right now. 
like, um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to get back oh, to these man. drink pictures. Um, yeah. So cool. Okay, telling her to leave me alone. All right, we're recording. We're gonna talk fairy tales, <laughs> <laughs> and yes, we're gonna we keep are. it a little bit of a surprise which fairy tale we ended up picking. That's right. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm sure some people. Okay think they know which one we picked and they might be right they might be wrong so you never know yep (laughs) (laughs) okay so here we go once upon a time (laughs) (laughs) all right kate you're not allowed to interrupt as i give this backstory you ready? That's fine. I'm just going to be over here with my juice. <laughs> and this sound is like going in and out. We'll see what actually ends up recording here. So, yeah. All right. I think this has happened before to us. Yeah. And sometimes Ugh. the recording after the fact comes out fine. Yeah. It's just so that, what that's what you we're and betting I, on. Yeah. It's just sometimes what you and I hear of each other mm-hmm. gets a little distorted. The recording is all in shape. So we're going to hope that's what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> right? We really, really hope so because I don't want to re-record this one. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> okay. So backstory. I was not read fairy tales as a child. I was read Bible stories or stories teaching a lesson from some religious-based family magazine that we received in the mail. Um, Friday night, family night, that was sometimes reading a story from that magazine together around the table and then discussing it. Cringe, cringe, that's, cringe. That's um, <laughs> weirdly wholesome. Yeah. So I can still remember now <laughs> how I felt totally uncomfortable in every one of those instances. It's mm-hmm. interesting to look back with hindsight and realize I was not completely buying into it, even at the point in time when you know my age was like a single digit. I was less than 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And so it's with that hindsight that I can see it was more than just disinterest or boredom. You, you'd expect mm-hmm. that from a, a kid. Well, yeah, yeah. That to play a role. But like I said, I can see now there was more to it than that. And right. it wasn't even a simple preference to watch the Dukes of Hazard and crush on Bo Duke <laughs> on a Friday night. <laughs> something Ooh, felt that takes wrong. me back. Right? <laughs> yeah, something felt wrong. And maybe if the religious indoctrination hadn't all been presented to me with so much emphasis on judgment and condemnation, Whoa, but rather sorry. you just really cut out there. Really? So, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, these readings, these the the whole family night, we'd read these, you know, articles and stories from this family magazine and the whole religious indoctrination that I was being fed was full of judgment and condemnation. Mm-hmm. But if perhaps instead everything had an emphasis on maybe love <laughs> instead of <laughs> condemning, I may have grown up to be a very different person. Mm. Very 
different person. But that's a topic for a whole separate podcast series. (laughs) (laughs) So fairy tales. I feel like I saw Disney's Snow White and Cinderella in a movie theater. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Perhaps something like a summertime midweek matinee may have been what it was, you know, getting out of the house. Um, But fairy tales are not what I was reading or having read to me. The only reading I remember was um, the story of the tortoise and the hare in early elementary school, which I'm thinking maybe around second grade, acting (laughs) it out in groups just in our class. Oh, it was a disaster. And parents came to see. There was, um, yeah, it was, you know, like little class presentation kind of thing. And there was even somebody that had a Bugs Bunny mask acting out the part of the hair. That's fucking frightening. It is. (laughs) Yes. In hindsight, totally freaky. Freaky as shit. Um, But even that story is a fable rather than a fairy tale. So it's still it's you know not quite there and so then i you know as i'm recalling all of this i'm going well what's the difference between a fable and a fairy tale well i had to google it and in the most simple terms a fable has a moral while a fairy Mm -hmm. tale is primarily for entertainment fables generally are about animals or plants and in some cases forces of nature that are humanized while a fairy tale typically has magic with good versus evil characters. And don't forget the ever so important phrase. Say it with me, Kate. Once, Once upon, upon a time. A time. <laughs> yeah, we can't even say that right together. Can't. No, no, no. <laughs> so in my childhood, anything with magic was discouraged. Because magic was akin to witchcraft. AKA evil or satanic. Wow. And I feel like such rigid and narrow views inevitably led to hypocrisy. And thank goodness for that, because I was allowed to read the Chronicles of Narnia since that was essentially fan fiction Bible stories. Yeah. Yeah. They, they crossed the lines. Well, I would think so. (laughs) Yeah. But it was religious, and I'm doing the air quotes, mm-hmm. so that made it okay. So magic right. in that instance was all right. Mm-hmm. So is it any surprise those are my most beloved book memories from my childhood, The Chronicles mm-hmm. of Narnia? It's where my oldest daughter's name comes from. It's from those books. Mm. I don't know if you realize that. And I still, to this day, cherish every one of those stories with everything in me. And curses, brilliant stories. They are. Curses on the publishers who produce box sets of the series in a different order than Lewis wrote them. But oh that's God. a whole different, yeah. Uh, Wikipedia says, fans of the series often have strong opinions over the order in which the books should be read. The issue revolves around the placement of the magician's nephew and the horse and his boy in the series. Yeah, that's a whole different topic. If somebody wants to go jump down that rabbit hole. <laughs> have at it. I, I, <laughs> Not I, it. I have my opinion, and my opinion is that they should be read in the order they were written. Anyway, that's a tangent. <laughs> if anybody wants to jump down that rabbit hole, um, message me. I'm happy to chat about it. So 
Anyway, even though those were religious-based, they were the closest thing I had to fairy tales in my childhood until the year 1989. Really? So I've I've shared all of this backstory for a purpose. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To explain why, at the age of 16, I would learn about a particular fairy tale and identify with it so completely. Mm. And I'm already getting choked up before I even get into the rest of this. (laughs) I found a story that told my story. The story Mm -hmm. of a daughter who had been indoctrinated with judgment and condemnation, the same I had been raised with. The Mm -hmm. world of narrow minds and prejudices that she never felt comfortable with, just like Mm -hmm. me. And deep down, she knew all of it was very wrong. So what fairy tale am I referring to? Disney's version of The Little Mermaid. Take it away, Kate, <laughs> while I get some tissues. <laughs> Sip on my drink. <laughs> yeah. So that is, I mean, that's intense. And I think we're going to see... Um, even in a deeper way, when we dive into the original, haha, Little Mermaid, dive into the original. Um, oh, there are even more uh, uh, linkages. Like, honestly, the Little Mermaid is a Ravenclaw. <gasps> I'm just saying. Oh, and you're, you're totally going to get that, and also, um. Uh, you know, there's, I can't even say anything else because it'll spoil it. So I'm just going to give a couple of facts real quick and then we'll get into the story and I'll save the rest of the dish for after because. Right. Yeah. Because Um, what we did was you pulled the original story mm -hmm. and I have not read it. Yeah. And you, you have not allowed me to look at it. And I've been, I've played along, (laughs) so this is all new to me. I stopped after looking up info on Hans Christian Andersen. That's where. That's right. That's where I passed the ball. (laughs) There you go. No, so he, uh, so Hans Christian Andersen was born in 1805 in Odense, Denmark. Uh, He was raised in a poor household with an illiterate mother and a father who only had an elementary school education. But that was enough for his father to read Arabian Nights to him as a child. Wow. I feel like you've talked about Arabian Nights with me and that it's kind of graphic in some instances. Am I mistaken? All these older story collections are really, really intense. you know, the Arabian Nights, uh, the Decameron's Boccaccio's Decameron, um, the Grimm fairy tales, like, they're really, like, whoa. (laughs) Um, But they're also much, they have a lot more humor and slice of life moments to them. Oh, wow. Okay. As well. So yeah, we'll do the Arabian Nights at some point too. Um, At the age of 14, he moved to Copenhagen to break into acting, and he did pretty well until puberty happened. And, you know, he still continued to 
act on the stage. Um, but he really started switching to writing, but because of his lack of education, he was kind of starting from behind the eight ball. So I'm going to leave his little bio there. Um, except to say that this was first published in 1837. Wow. 1837. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. Okay. So that's, he would have been, I think 32. We're approaching 400 years ago. Did I do eight? 1837? No, 200 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a Okay, true confession. I had some whiskey before we even recorded. <laughs> whoa. Whoa, are you trespassing on my preserves, girlfriend? I, oh, you would be you would Oh, you're going to be you're going to cry when I tell you what I had. I had a little bit of Fireball. <laughs> Oh my God. I, yeah, we're, we're going to have to save the fireball it, discussion for later because. Yes. Yes. Moving on. 200. The story years is really, on. really long. Okay. And I actually, I, I will uh, put a little note here. I did um, some uh, selected excurt excisions <laughs> from right. this basically because there was just a lot of description. Like, you think Dickens was paid by the penny and was long-winded? Well, mm. there was a, just a lot, a lot, a lot of wow. description. And I, you know, I kind of cut out what I could. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. So <clears throat> a slightly abridged Little Mermaid. All right. So you tell so, me when and how far to scroll. <laughs> okay. So you can basically, we're going to alternate paragraphs, so we'll just okay. scroll by the paragraph. There's notes in, in here. Jen, don't scroll past this. Seriously, stop scrolling. <laughs> yeah. I'll, okay, I'll so... screenshot that for the uh, episode. <laughs> <laughs> so All I right. have the first two paragraphs. Yeah. So I will... I'm not sure what that sound is. I you hear think it too? My, <laughs> oh I think my, my husband is using some sort of food processor. Okay. All right. That's cool. Whatever. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is how this things is not go prof- down. This is not a professional recording studio. He is making barbecue, <laughs> so we're offering that up. Um, All right, here we go. (laughs) I'll read the first one. Okay. Far out in the sea, the water is as blue as the petals of the loveliest of cornflowers and as clear as the clearest glass, but it is very deep, deeper than any anchor cable can reach, and many church towers would have been, would have to be put one on top of another to reach from the bottom out of the water. Down there live the sea people. In the deepest place of all lies the sea king's palace. The walls are of coral and the tall pointed windows of the clearest possible amber. We know about amber. Mm -hmm. But the roof is of mussel shells that open and shut themselves as the water moves. It all looks beautiful, for in every one of them lie shining pearls, 
a single one of which would be the principal ornament in a queen's crown. The sea king down there had been a widower for many years, but his old mother kept house for him. She was a clever woman, but proud of her rank, for which reason she went about with 12 oysters on her tail, while the rest of the nobility might only carry six. For the rest, she deserved high praise, especially because she was so fond of the little sea princesses, her grandchildren. There were six of them, beautiful children, but the youngest was the prettiest of them all. Her skin was bright and pure as a rose leaf. Her eyes were as blue as the deepest lake, but like all the rest, she had no feet. Her body ended in a fish's tail. Wow. So then there's like about a page going on and on and on about this little sea garden that she keeps and what kinds of flowers. And then there's like this statue that fell. Um, Yeah, a statue of a very anonymous, handsome young man. And so she loved having that statue in her garden. The granddaughter or the grandmother? The granddaughter. Okay. The little, this is the Little Mermaid. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So there you go. She had no greater delight than in dreaming about the world of men up above. The old grandmother had to tell her all she knew about ships and horses and men and animals. It seemed to her particularly delightful that up there on earth, the flowers smelt sweet, which they did not at the sea bottom and that the woods were green and the fish which one saw among the branches could sing so loud and prettily, (laughs) they call the birds fish, that it was a joy to hear them. That took me a minute to piece that together, that they're referring Mm. to the birds as fish, but that's their frame of reference. It was the little birds that the grandmother called fish. Otherwise, they could not have understood, for they had never seen a bird. There you go. Yeah. When you are full 15 years old, said the grandmother, (laughs) you shall have leave to come up out of the sea and sit on the rocks in the moonlight and see the big ships that come sailing by and forests and houses you shall see. During the year that was passing, one of the sisters was 15 years old, but the rest Why, each was a year younger than the next, and so the youngest had a clear five years to wait before she could come up from the sea bottom and see how things go with us. But the first promised the next one to tell her what she had seen and had thought beautiful on the first day, for their grandmother didn't tell them enough. There were very many things they wanted to know about." None of them was so full of longing as the youngest, the very one who had the longest time to wait, and was so quiet and thoughtful. Many a night she stood at the open window and gazed up through the dark blue waters where the fish went waving their fins and tails. And now the eldest princess was 15 years old and could rise up above the surface of the sea. When she came back, she had a hundred things to tell. But the most beautiful thing, she said, was to lie on a sandbank in the moonlight in the calm sea and to see close by the shore the big town where the lights twinkled like hundreds of stars 
and to hear the sound of music and the noise and stir of carts and people and see all the church towers and steeples and hear the bells ringing. And just because she couldn't go up there, she longed after all that most of all. The year after, the second sister had leave to rise up through the water and swim where she liked. She ducked up just as the sun was going down, and the sight of that she thought the most beautiful of all. Next year, the third sister went up. She was the boldest of them all, and so she swam up a broad river that ran into the sea. Beautiful green hills she saw, with rows of vines upon them. Palaces and mansions peeped out from among stately woods. She heard all the birds singing, and the sun shone so hot that she had to drive, ben- uh, drive, dive beneath <laughs> the water to cool her burning face. I'm going to take another sip of my drink. <laughs> <laughs> the fourth sister was not so daring. She stayed out in the lonely sea and told them that that was the most beautiful of all. You could see many, many miles all around and the sky arched over you like a great bell of glass. Now came the turn of the fifth sister. Her birthday, it happened, was in winter. And so she saw what the others had not seen on their first visit. The sea was all green to look at and round about there floated large icebergs, everyone looking like a pearl, she said, and yet they were far bigger than the church towers that men built. The first time any of the sisters came to the top of the water, each one of them was always entranced by all the new pretty sights she saw. But now that, as grown girls, they had leave to go up whenever they liked, it became quite ordinary to them and they longed to be at home again. And after a month had passed, they said that after all, it was far prettier at the bottom, and and there one was so comfortable at home. On many an evening, the five sisters would link arms together and rise in a row above the water. They had lovely voices, more beautiful than any human beings, And when a storm was coming on and they thought some ships might be lost, they would swim before the ships and sing most beautifully of how pretty it was at the bottom of the sea and bade the seafarers not to be afraid of coming down there. Yeah, right. Oh my goodness. But they could not understand their words. They thought it was the storm. Nor did they see any beautiful things down there either, for when the ship sank, they were drowned, and only as dead corpses did they ever reach the Sea King's palace. Okay, this is getting freaky. This is getting morbid. It's raining, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. We have a fairy tale with dead corpses, which I guess that's redundant, isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, but they—you could say uh, bloating, bloated, drowned corpses. Okay, yeah. I mean, wow. you know, and those muscle shells that like open up. Right. You know, you're sitting oh, there having dinner, and a dead Boom. human falls Boom. in through the ceiling. <laughs> 
God. (laughs) (laughs) Got to keep it lively. All right. Okay. When of an evening the sisters rose like this, arm in arm, up through the sea, their little sister was left behind quite alone, looking after them, and it seemed as if she must have wept, but a mermaid has no tears, and that makes her suffer all the more. Wow, that's kind of poetic. Mm-hmm. Oh, if only I was 15, she said. I know I shall become really fond of that world up there and of the people who have their homes there. At last, she was 15 years old. There now, we've got you off our hands, said the grandmother, the old widow queen. Come here and let me dress you out like your other sisters. She put a wreath of white lilies on her hair, only every petal in the flower was a half pearl, and the old lady made eight large oysters take tight hold of the princess's tail to indicate her high rank. But it hurts so, said the little mermaid. Yes, well, one must suffer a little for smartness's sake, said the old lady. Oh, dear. She would gladly have shaken off all this finery and put away the heavy wreath. The red flowers in her garden became her much better, but she dare not change it. Goodbye, she said, and rose bright and light as a bubble up through the water. The sun had just gone down when she lifted her head above the sea. The air was soft and cool, and the sea dead calm. (laughs) There lay a great ship with three masts. Only a single sail was set, for no wind was stirring. And around about on the rigging and on the yard, sailors were sitting. There was music and singing, and as evening grew darker, hundreds of variegated lamps were lit. The little mermaid swam straight up to the cabin window, and every time a wave lifted her... I thought the sea was dead calm. She could see through at the windows, clear as mirrors, numbers of gaily dressed people. But the handsomest of them all was the young prince with the big black eyes. He was certainly not much over 16. And this was his birthday. And that was why there were all these fine doings. The sailors danced on the deck, and when the young prince came out there, more than a hundred rockets shot up into the sky. They shone as bright as day, and the little mermaid was quite frightened and dived down beneath the water. But soon she put her head up again, and then it seemed as if all the stars in the sky were falling down on her. Oh, I love I know. fireworks. <laughs> On the ship itself, there was so much light that you could see every last rope, let alone the people. Oh, how handsome the young prince was. He shook hands with the crew and smiled and laughed while the music rang out into the beautiful night. It grew late, but the little mermaid could not take her eyes off the ship and the beautiful prince. But the ship now took a swifter pace. One sail after another was spread. The waves rose higher. Great clouds came up in the distance. There was lightning. Oh, there would be a terrible storm. And the seamen took in the sail. Wow. The great ship 
plowed with speed of a bird over the wild sea. The water piled itself into huge black mountains as if to top the masts. To the little mermaid, it seemed just a pleasant jaunt, but not so to the sailors. The ship creaked and cracked. The stout planks bent with the mighty blows that the sea dealt. The mast snapped in the midst as if it had been a reed. And the ship heeled over on her side while the water rushed into her hull. Now the little mermaid saw that they were in peril. She herself had to beware of the beams and broken pieces of the ship that were driven about in the sea. Everyone was leaping off as best he could. The young prince above all she looked for. And when she, and she saw him when the ship parted, uh, sinking down into the deep. For a moment, she was full of joy that now he was coming down to her. But then she remembered that men could not live in the water and that he could never come alive to her father's palace. No, die he must not. <laughs> Good so logic. She, right? Solid, solid reasoning. See, I told you she's a Ravenclaw. She, she is a Ravenclaw. So she swam in among the beams and planks that drove about in the water, quite forgetting that they might have crushed her, dived deep beneath the water and rose high among the billows, and so came at last to the young prince, who could hardly keep himself aloft any longer in the stormy sea. His arms and legs were beginning to tire. His beautiful eyes were closing, but he would perforce have died had not the little mermaid come to him. She held his head above the water and let the, wa uh, let the waves drive her with him whither they would. At dawn, the tempest was over. Of the ship, there was not a bit to be seen. The sun rose red and bright out of the water, and it seemed as if thereat life came into the prince's cheeks. But his eyes were still closed. The mermaid kissed his fair high forehead and stroked back his wet hair. She kissed him again and wished that he might live after all. And now she saw in front of her the dry land, high blue hills on whose top the white snow shone as if swans were lying there. Down by the shore were lovely green woods, and in front of them lay a church or an abbey, she knew not what, but at least a building. At this spot, the sea made a little bay. It was dead calm, there's that word again, but very <laughs> deep right up to the rocks where the fine white sand was washed up. Hither she swam with the fair prince and laid him on the sand, but took care that his head should rest uppermost in the warm sunshine. Aww. I know. He really thinks out the details in this. Um, he does. <laughs> was he a Ravenclaw too? <laughs> I think he probably was. Um, yeah. I think he was. Now the bells rang out from the great white building and a number of young maidens came out through the gardens. The little mermaid swam farther out behind some high boulders which stuck up out of the water, laid some sea foam, foam over her hair and her bosom so that no one could see her little face. And there she watched to see who would come to the poor prince. She's camouflaging herself. 
<laughs> this is awesome. Oh my gosh, I love this. Okay. As opposed to what Disney Little Mermaid does. Yeah. It was not long before a young girl came that way and seemed to be quite terrified, but only for a moment. Then she fetched more people and the mermaid saw the prince revive and smile on all those about him. But on her out there, he did not smile. He had, of course, no notion that she had rescued him. She felt very sad. And when he was carried into the great building, she dived sorrowfully down into the water and betook herself home to her father's palace. She had always been quiet and thoughtful, but now she became much more so. The sisters asked her what she had seen the first time she went up, but she did not tell them anything about it. Every evening and morning did she go up to the place where she had left the prince. At last she could contain herself no longer, but told one of her sisters, and at once all the others got to know it, but nobody <laughs> else except them, and just one or two other mermaids, who didn't <laughs> tell anyone but their dearest friends. <laughs> that is oh, some shade. He, he wrote that perfectly. That was some serious shade. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> the foul gossiping habit of women. One of these could tell who the prince was. She too had seen the fete on the ship and knew where he came from and where his kingdom lay. Come, little sister, said the other princesses. Oops, sorry, I just That's kept fine. reading. Yeah, right. go for it. And with their arms about each other's shoulders, they rose in a long line out of the sea in front of the spot where they knew the prince's palace's palace was. I'm still cracking up on Anderson <laughs> casting shade on females. Oh, he is a salty bitch. <laughs> that was that was awesome. That was good. Mm-hmm. It was built of a kind of pale yellow shining stone with great marble steps that you could go down straight into the sea. Now she knew where he lived, and stalker, thither she came on many an evening and night upon the water. She's stalker. Actually very, she's actually very Ravenclaw because she's using the resources that she has available to her to find mm -hmm. out information. Yep. And she's, she, she's like, I have no boundaries in pursuit of more data. <laughs> right. Because knowledge is power. Yeah. I mean, just read the next sentence like, damn. Okay. She swam much closer to the land than any of the others had dared to do. <laughs> she even went right up the narrow canal beneath the stately balcony of marble, which cast a shadow far over the water. Here, she would sit and gaze at the young prince, who believed himself to be quite alone in the bright moonlight. Damn! No boundaries, stalker, and um, I'm pretty sure, I think I know, that there, there is a very, <clears throat> believed himself to be alone, subtext. Right. I'm just saying. No, I'm not kidding, like, there... The Victorians were restrained, but once you learn to spot the way they like slip subtext in there, really? Like, oh shit. So he's like 
having a party Jacking of off. one. You said it. You actually said it. I did. Oh my god. Kate turning the little mermaid into a porno. <laughs> Don't tell me there's no fan fiction like that out there. If there's not, you and I are going to write it. <laughs> oh, there is. Trust me, there is. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is I forgot who read. Is it me now? Oh, it's me. Sorry. Okay. I don't know who read the... I don't know who read the jacket. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Here we go. (laughs) Many a night when the fishermen lay out at sea with torches, she heard them telling all manner of good about the young prince, and it made her glad that she had saved his life when he was being (laughs) tossed half dead upon the waves. If he was a jerk, damn, wasted effort. Very Ravenclaw. And she thought of... Now, here again... Subtext, and she thought of how close his head had lain on her bosom, and how lovingly she had kissed him then. He knew nothing whatever about it, and could not so much as dream about her. Okay, so what are they saying there? That I mean, or she is was that, hot and horny for him. Like it's that she, that plain. It's that simple. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, that's what I'm getting her, from it. Her but. head lain upon her bosom. I mean, like. Okay. Like his head was on her boob. She was like, right. that feels interesting. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Oh, the next line. Okay. She became fonder and fonder of human people and more and more did she long to be able to go up amongst them. See, this is what my parents were afraid of. This mm-hmm. is why they kept me so sheltered because the temptation yeah. Their world, she thought, was far larger than hers, for they could fly far over the sea in ships, climb high up above the clouds on the lofty mountains, and the lands they owned stretched over forests and fields farther than she could see. There was a great deal she wanted to know, but her sisters could not answer all her questions. So she asked the very old grandmother. She knew well the upper world, as she was very properly called the... What? She knew well the upper world, as she very properly called the countries the, above the sea. Yeah, there we so go. Okay. the upper world is what they called the land. Okay. Got it. <clears throat> Got it. If the human people aren't drowned, the little mermaid inquired, can they go on living always? Don't they die as we do down here in the sea? You want me to do the old lady voice? Yeah, you do the old lady. You do an excellent old lady. All right. From now on, you do the mermaid and I'll do the other voices. Okay. Okay. Yes, said the old lady. They have to die too. And besides, their lifetime is shorter than ours. We can live for 300 years, but when we cease to be here, we only turn to foam on the water and have not even a grave down here among our dear ones. We have no immortal souls. We never live again. We are like the green weed. Once it is cut down, it never grows green again. Humankind, on the other hand, have a soul that lives always after the body has turned into earth. It rises up through the clear air, uh, up to all the shining stars, just as we rise out of the sea and look at the human people's country. So do they rise up to unknown and beautiful places, which we never attain? 
Interesting. So is Anderson making an analogy here? Um, a, a metaphor? What's the, he's. I, I explained some of this oh, in okay. afterwards because yeah, it, yep. it's part of the dish. Got it. Okay. Why did we have no immortal souls given us? Said the little mermaid very sadly. I would give all my hundreds of years that I have to live to be a human being for only one day and then get a share in the heavenly world. You mustn't go thinking about that, said the old lady. We have a much happier and better lot uh, than the people up here, up there. So then I've got to die and float like foam on the sea and not hear the noise of the waves and see the lovely flowers and the red sun. Can't I do anything at all to gain an everlasting soul? <laughs> Such a teenager. No, <laughs> said the old lady. Only if a human being held you so dear that you were to him more than father or mother, and if with all his thoughts and affections he clung to you and made the priest lay his right hand in yours with the promise to be faithful to you here and forever, then his soul would flow over into your body and you too would have a share in the destiny of men. He would give you a soul and still keep his own. But that can never happen. The very thing that is counted beautiful here in the sea, I mean, your fish's tail, they think horrid up there on the earth. They have no notion of what's proper. Up there, people must needs have two clumsy props, which they call legs if they're to look nice. <laughs> the little mermaid sighed and looked sadly at her fish's tail. Let's be cheerful, said the old lady. We'll jump and dance for about 300 years, for the 300 years we have to live. It's long enough in all conscience. After that, one can sleep it out all the pleasanter in one's grave. Tonight, we're going to have a court ball. Oh my goodness. <coughs> oh, this is great. This is great. This is great. I need a drink of water. <coughs> oh. Yeah. Oh. Beverage break. <clears throat> okay. You weren't kidding when you said this was long. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> pray the recording holds true. <laughs> Woo. Yeah. Okay. Truly, it was a magnificent affair, such as you never see on earth. The Little Mermaid sang the most beautifully of them all, and they clapped their hands at her, and for a moment she felt joy at her heart, for she knew that she had the loveliest voice of anyone on earth or sea. But soon she began to think again about the world above her. She could not forget the handsome prince and her own sorrow that she did not, like him, possess an immortal soul. So she stole out of her father's palace and sat sadly in her little garden. There she heard the beating waves surround, uh, surround, sounding down through the water, and she thought, Sure, he is sailing up there, he whom I love more than father or mother, he to whom my thoughts cling, and in whose hand I would lay the destiny of my life. I would risk everything to win him, 
and an immortal soul. While my sisters are dancing in my father's palace, I will go to the old sea witch. I've always been dreadfully afraid of her, but it may be she can advise me and help me. Yeah. Yeah, that slamming you heard was horseradish was like scratching the door to go out for the past (laughs) like 25 minutes. So I was like, (laughs) I texted Eric, please come and get horseradish. And horseradish was like, no, I don't want to go. In. Not, not with him. So Eric like just grabbed him, and he's like, "Fuck this!" <laughs> Slammed the door. <laughs> yeah, the inner workings behind the current, behind the curtain. It's so magical, right? So the Little Mermaid went off out of her garden towards the roaring maelstrom behind which the witch lived. She had never been that way before. Now she came to a great slimy clearing in the wood, (laughs) wow, where large, fat water snakes wallowed, showing their ugly, whitey-yellow coils. In the center of the clearing was a house built of the white bones of men. Dun-dun-dun. Well, you know, after they fall into the king's palace, like, what are they going to do with them, right? Right? Reduce, reuse, recycle. (laughs) There you go. It's an eco-friendly house. (laughs) There the sea witch sat, making a toad feed out of her mouth. Wait, what? Yeah, you read that right. Oh, my God. Okay, making a toad feed out of her mouth as we make a little canary bird eat sugar. Oh, shit. Who puts sugar in their mouth and is like, come here, bird, come eat out of my mouth. Oh, my fucking God. Crazy Victorian Danish. What the fuck? So the yeah. sea witch is has something in her mouth and she's making a toad eat it. Yeah. Out of her own mouth. Oh my yeah. god. Read, okay, so read the next one and yeah. then I'll do the sea witch. The hideous fat water snakes she called her little chicks and let them coil about over her great spongy bosom. Oh shit, really? Yeah. Oh. So remember all that grief? <laughs> People gave Disney because Ursula was very generously endowed oh, and bouncy. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's yeah. a nod to the original, okay? <laughs> like this is his yeah. imagination. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Oof. So it's not body shaming. It's actually, yeah. So Alrighty. I know well enough what you want said the sea witch. A silly thing, too. All the same, you shall have your way, for it'll bring you to a bad end, my pretty princess. You want to be rid of your fishtail and have two props to walk on instead, like humans, so that the young prince may fall in love with you, and you may get him and an immortal soul. With that, the witch laughed so loud and so hideously that the toad and the snakes tumbled down onto the ground and wallowed about there. (laughs) You've come just in the nick of time, said the witch. Tomorrow after sunrise, I couldn't help you till another year came round. I shall make a drink for you. And with it, you must swim to the land before the sun rises Put yourself on the beach there and drink it up, and then your tail will part and open into what men call pretty legs. But it'll hurt. It'll be like a sharp sword going through you. Oh, my God, Kate. 
this is, is this what I think it is? Victorian subtext, yes. Holy shit. Oh my God. Everybody that sees you will say you are the prettiest human child they ever saw. You'll keep your swimming gait and no dancer will be able to float along like you. But every step you take will be as if you were treading on a sharp knife so that you would think your blood must gush out. If you can bear all that, I'll do as you wish. Oh, my God. Yeah, they didn't include this in the Disney version. No, they did not. Oh, my yeah, God. Every step is literally stepping on knives. Wow. Okay. Yes, said the Little Mermaid with a faltering voice. And she thought of the prince and of winning an immortal soul. But remember, said the witch, once you've taken a human shape, you can never become a mermaid again. You can never go down through the water to your sister's or to your father's palace. And if you don't win the love of the prince, so that for you he forgets his father and mother and clings to you with all his thoughts and makes the priest lay your hand one in another's so that you become man and wife and all that, then you won't get your immortal soul. On the first morning after he's married to anyone else... Your heart will break and you'll become foam on the water. Damn. It is my wish, said the little mermaid, pale as a corpse. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying, man. But I must be paid, too, said the witch. Oh, hi, horseradish. And it's, Hi, not a sm- yeah. <laughs> and it's not a small matter that I require. You have the loveliest voice of anyone down here at the bottom of the sea. And with it, no doubt, you think you'll be able to charm him. But the voice, uh, that voice you must give me. I must have the best thing you possess as the price of my precious drink. I shall have to give you my own blood in it that the drink may be as sharp as a two-edged sword. Eek. But if you take away my voice, said the little mermaid, what have I left? Your beautiful form, said the witch, and your floating gait and your speaking eyes. With them you could easily delude a human heart. What, have you lost your courage? Put out your little tongue and I'll cut it off for the price and you shall have the potent drink. Wow. She's going to cut off her tongue? Yeah. Hopefully that's not. Is that literal? Yeah. Like, oh. Just read. Oh my God. Just okay. read. All right. <laughs> so be it, said the little mermaid. And the witch put her cauldron on the fire to boil the magic drink. Cleanliness mm. is a good thing, said she, and scoured out the cauldron with some snakes which she tied into a knot. Then she scratched herself in the breast and let the black blood drip into the pot. Wow. Didn't know this was the horror genre, did you? Right? (laughs) The steam took the most dreadful shapes, enough to cast, enough to fill one with fear and horror. Every moment the witch cast something afresh into the cauldron, and when it was really boiling, the sound was like that of a crocodile weeping. (laughs) What? At last, the drink was ready, and it looked like the clearest of water. 
Oh, damn. There you are, said the witch, <laughs> and cut off the tongue of the little mermaid. Oh, my now God. She was, now she was dumb. She could neither sing nor speak. At least the witch waited until she handed over the product. Oh, you know? my God. Like, she didn't take payment up front. Things can go wrong with a potion brewing. Like, we all read Harry Potter. You know, potions are tricky. Wow. So, you know, she gives her the potion, and she's like, okay, now you can give me your tongue. I'm just saying. Oh, my goodness. All right. So she passed quickly through the wood and the marsh and the roaring maelstrom, if I can pronounce mm -hmm. that correctly. You did. She could see her father's palace. The torches were quenched in the great ballroom. No doubt everyone in there was asleep, but she dared not go to them now that she was dumb and was going to leave them forever. It seemed as if her heart must burst asunder with sorrow. She blew on her fingers a thousand kisses towards the palace and rose up through the dark blue sea. The sun was not yet up when she saw the prince's palace and clambered up the stately marble steps. The moon was shining beautifully bright. The little mermaid swallowed the sharp burning drink, and it was as though a two-edged sword was piercing her delicate body. She swooned with the pain and lay as one dead. Wow. Okay. When the and sun yes, that is what you think. <laughs> because I also, please note the moonlight reference. I don't get the moonlight reference. The prince was alone in the moonlight. Um. Okay. When he was having a party of one. Okay. So... And now she's having a pseudo-sexual, pseudo-deflowering in the moonlight. Okay. Right. Yeah. Victorian subtext. Hashtag. Okay. When the sun shone out over the sea, she awoke and felt a torturing pang. But right in front of her stood the beautiful young prince. Convenient. <laughs> he fixed his coal-black eyes on her so that she cast her own eyes down and saw that her fish's tail was gone and that she now had the prettiest small white legs that any young girl could have. But she was quite naked. So she wrapped herself in her masses of long hair. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting that under the sea, she's like, I'm naked, I'm going topless, whatever. Right. Like, that's natural. And suddenly she gets legs and she's like, oh, oh, can't show my titties. <laughs> <laughs> oh. The prince asked who she was and how she had come there. And she gazed at him sweetly yet sadly with her dark blue eyes, for she could not speak. Then he took her by the hand and led her into the palace. Every step she took was, as the witch had warned her, as if she was treading on pointed swords and sharp knives. Yet she bore it gladly. Led by the prince's hand, she walked light as a bubble, and he and everyone else marveled at her graceful floating gait. Costly robes of silk and muslin were put on her, and she was the fairest of all in the palace. But she was dumb and could neither speak nor sing. 
beautiful slave girls clad in silks and gold came forward and sang to the prince and his royal parents. One sang more sweetly than all the rest, and the prince applauded her and smiled on her. Then the little mermaid was sad, for she knew that she herself had sung far more sweetly. And she thought, oh, if he could but know that to be near him, I have given my voice away forever. Then the slave girls danced graceful floating dances to the noblest of music. Bullshit. (laughs) They were bumping and grinding. And now the little mermaid raised her pretty white arms and rose on tiptoe and floated over the floor and danced as none had ever yet danced. She got jiggy with it. (laughs) At every moment, her beauty grew more on the sight and her eyes spoke more deeply to the heart than the song of the slave girls. Everyone was enraptured by it, and more than all, the prince who called her his little foundling, and she danced again and again, though every time her foot touched the ground, it was as though she was treading on sharp knives. The prince said that now she should always be near him, and she was allowed to sleep outside his door on a cushion of silk. Are you freaking kidding me? She gets a a cushion outside his door? Woof, woof. Oh, my God. Yeah. How rude. (sighs) Okay. The um, prince is actually 17. I might have edited that bit out, but he's a 17-year-old boy in this story, and she's 15. Yeah. I I remember you mentioned that was in the... um, when she first saw him at the, and it was his birthday, it mm-hmm. said either six, he was, I think she said he looked like he was 16 and it was his birthday. So yeah, he's so either, he, he actually is 17 turning they it later. And I think I might have okay. edited it. I don't know, but yeah. So, wow. Yeah. He had a, okay. Yeah. He had a boy's dress made for her so that she might ride with him on horseback. Oh my God. <laughs> that, I'm, that's, that's, I'm just going to leave that there. Just leaving that there. Because honestly, the physics don't work. No matter what you've ever read, the physics do not work. (laughs) They rode through the sweet-smelling woods where the green boughs brushed her shoulders and the little birds sang in the cover of the young leaves. With the prince, she clambered up the high mountains, and though her delicate feet were cut so that everyone could see, because apparently he didn't give her shoes, right? she only laughed. And f- But if you've ever heard somebody without a tongue laugh, hmm. it, and followed him till they could see the clouds beneath them like a flock of birds flying toward the distant lands. That's a high mountain. At that that is like some serious yeah. like mountaineering. That is like where you need yeah. ropes and belay shit to get up there. <laughs> and she's doing that fucking barefoot. Barefoot. Do you think they saw any goats on the mountainside? <laughs> you know, I I have feelings on this. Like I know. 
just keep going, keep going. You can tell that the whiskey and the whatever you're drinking is like yes. definitely starting to kick in. It's kicking in. Let's just do at, this. Yeah. At home at the prince's palace when at night all the others were asleep, she would go out to the broad marble stairs and it cooled her burning feet to stand in the cold seawater. And then she thought about those who were down in the deeps below. One night, her sisters came up arm in arm, singing mournfully as they swam on the water. And she beckoned to them, and they recognized her and told her how sad she had made them all. After that, they visited her every night. And one night, she saw far out in the sea the old grandmother, who had not been to the top of the water for many a year, and the sea king with his crown on his head. They stretched their arms toward her, but they dared not trust themselves so near the land as the sisters. Wow. Day by day, she grew dearer to the prince. He loved her as one might love a dear good child, but he never had a thought of making her his queen. And his wife she must be, or else she could never win an immortal soul. But on his wedding morning, she would turn into foam on the sea. You can read the next one. Are not you fonder of me than of all the rest? The little mermaid's eyes seemed to say when he took her in his arms and kissed her fair brow. Yes, you are dearest of all to me, said the prince, for you have the best heart of them all. You are dearest to me and you are like a young maiden whom I saw once and certainly shall never meet again. I was on a ship that was wrecked. And the waves drove me to, a, to land near a holy temple where a number of young maidens ministered. The youngest of them found me on the bank and saved my life. I only saw her twice. She was the only one I could love in all the world. But you are like her. You almost stamp her likeness on my soul. She belongs to that holy temple, and therefore my good fortune has sent you to me, and we will never part. Damn. <laughs> Just uh, keep he, reading. Just yeah. keep reading. Oh, it, uh, note, he saw the, the maiden at the, the – basically, they were nuns. Wait, Is that what on. I'm gathering? You, 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 you cut in and out again. Hold on. You're, Give it a second. You're cutting in and out, too. And – Okay, so basically, I'm asking, were the, the maidens on the shore, was that basically a convent with nuns? Yeah. Is that? Well, it was a con. It was a convent school. Okay. Um, because, no, he said he saw her twice. So Prince went back for seconds. He probably saw her when she was like, okay, so remember she found him and then she ran back to get other people and came back with them? Okay, right, right, right. So he's counting that as twice. That or maybe mm. when he opened his eyes and he saw her and then maybe again she visited him in the infirmary or something or like she was brought okay. so he could say thank you. I don't know. Okay. Everything was gobbledygook from the technology, but 
We'll see. All right. Reading on. Do I sound okay to you? You sound great to me. Because you're still going in and out. But I'm going to try reading and we'll see where this goes. I spoke too soon. Ah, he doesn't know that I saved his life. Hello. Thought the little mermaid. I bore him over the sea, away to the grove where the temple stands. Hang on. I sat behind him in the foam and watched to see if anyone would come and saw the pretty maiden whom he loves more than me. And the mermaid heaved a deep sigh. Weep she could not. The maiden belongs to the holy temple, he said. She will never come out into the world. They will never meet again. I am with him. I see him every day. I will tend him and love him and give up my life to him. I will call him George. (laughs) (laughs) But now the prince was to be married, people said, and to take the beautiful daughter of the neighboring king. And it was for that that he was fitting out such a splendid ship. I must travel, he said to her. I must see the pretty princess. My father and mother require that, but they will not force me to bring her home as my bride. I cannot love her. She is not like the fair maiden of the temple as you are. If ever I choose a bride, it would be you first, my dumb foundling with the speaking eyes. And he kissed her red lips and played with her long hair. Oh my God. And laid his head on her heart (laughs) so that it dreamed of man's destiny and an undying soul. You are not afraid of the sea, are you, my dumb child? He said as they stood on the splendid ship that was to bear them to the country of the neighboring king. And he told her of storms and calm, of strange fishes in the deep, and of what divers he had seen down there. And she smiled at his mansplaining, I mean, description. (laughs) For, of course, she knew more than anybody else about the bottom of the sea. (laughs) Okay. Next morning, the ship sailed into the harbor of the neighboring king's fine city. Every day there was a feat. Balls and parties followed on one another. But as yet, the princess was not there. She was being brought up far away in a sacred temple, they said. And there was learning all royal accomplishments, At last she arrived. The little mermaid waited, eager to see her beauty, and she had to confess that a more graceful form she had never seen. The skin was so delicate and pure, and behind the long, dark eyelashes, a pair of dark blue, beautiful eyes smiled out. It is you! said the prince, you who saved me when I lay like a corpse on the shore. And he clasped his brushing, blushing bride in his arms. Oh, I am more than happy, he said to the little mermaid. My dearest wish, the thing I never dared hope for, has been granted me. 
you will rejoice in my happiness, for you are fonder of me than all the rest. And the little mermaid kissed his hand and thought she felt her heart breaking. His wedding morning would bring death to her and would change her into foam on the sea. Wow. See, this is where she needs to go into Ravenclaw mode. All right. Yeah. All the church bells were ringing. The heralds rode about and proclaimed the betrothal. The little mermaid, clad in silk and gold, stood holding the bride's train. Strangle the bitch. But her ears heard not the festal music. Her eyes saw not the holy rite. She thought on the eve of her death of all that she had lost in the world. That very evening, the bride and bridegroom embarked on the ship, and the cannons were fired and the flags waved, and amidship was raised a royal tent of gold and purple with the loveliest of curtains. And there, the married pair were to sleep in that calm, cool night. Not that they got much sleep. The sails bellied in the wind. Bellied? That's a new word for me. I guess that's a nautical well, term. Well, because when a sail fills with wind, it looks like a fat belly. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the ship glided easily and with little motion away over the bright sea. Wow. When, when it grew dark, lamps were lit and the crew danced merry dances on the deck. The Little Mermaid, too, whirled about in the dance, and everyone was in ecstasies of wonder at her. Never wow. before had she danced so wonderfully. Sharp knives seemed to be cutting her delicate feet, but she hardly felt it. The wounds in her heart were sharper. She knew that was the last night she would see him for whom she had forsaken her race and her home and given up her lovely voice and daily had suffered unending pain unknown to him. This was the last night that she would breathe the same air as he or see the deep ocean and the starlit heavens, an eternal night without thought, without dream awaited her who neither had a soul nor could win one. Damn. <laughs> but, <laughs> but all was joy and merriment aboard the ship till long past midnight. She laughed and danced with the thought of death in her heart. The prince kissed his beautiful bride as she played with his black hair, and arm in arm they went to rest, I'm doing air quotes, in the splendid tent. Love uh-huh. tent. <laughs> it's a funky old tent. <laughs> the love tent. It's a little old tent. <laughs> it was still and quiet now on the ship. Only the helmsman stood at the tiller. The little mermaid laid her white arms on the bulwark and gazed eastward for the red of dawn. The first ray of the sun, she knew, 
would kill her. Then she saw her sisters rise out of the sea. They were as pale as she, their beautiful long hair no longer fluttered in the breeze. It had been cut off. Dun, dun, dun. We have given it to the witch to make her help us that you may not die tonight. She has given us a knife. Here it is. Do you see how sharp it is? Before the sun rises, you must plunge it into the prince's heart. And when his warm blood gushes out upon your feet, they will grow together into a fish tail and you will become a mermaid again and will be able to come down to us in the water and live out your 300 years before you turn into the Dead Sea salt foam. Make haste. He or you must die before the sun rises. Our old grandmother has been mourning till her white hair has fallen off. And let me tell you, that is such a pain. (laughs) Kill the prince and come back. Make haste. Do you not see the red band in the heavens? In a few minutes, the sun will climb into the sky and then you must die. And with a strange, heavy sigh, they sank beneath the waves. The little mermaid drew aside the purple curtain of the love tent (laughs) and saw the beautiful bride sleeping with her head on the prince's breast, I mean pectorals. Mm -hmm. And she stopped and kissed him on his fair brow and looked at the sky where the red of the dawn was shining brighter and brighter, looked at the sharp knife, and fixed her eyes again on the prince, who in his sleep was murmuring the name of his bride. She alone was in his thoughts, and the knife quivered in the mermaid's hand, but then she cast it far out into the waves. And where it fell, they shone red, and it seemed as if drops of blood spurted up out of the water. Once more, she gazed with a half-dying glance on the prince, and then threw herself from the ship into the sea, and felt that her body was dissolving into foam. Wow. Now the sun ascended out of the sea, and his rays fell mild and warm upon the death-cold foam, and the little mermaid felt no, no touch of death. She saw the bright sun, and above her floated hundreds of lovely transparent forms. Their voices were as music, but so ethereal, I can never Did I say that word right? Ethereal, yeah. Ethereal, that no human ear could hear it, just as no earthly eye could see them. Wingless, they floated by their own lightness through the air. The little mermaid saw that she too had a body like theirs, which was rising further and further up out of the foam. To whom am I coming, she said and her voice rang like that of the other beings, so ethereally that no earthly music can re-echo its sound. 
To the daughters of the air, the others answered. The mermaid has no immortal soul and can never gain one unless she wins the love of a mortal. It is on a power outside her that eternal being depends. The daughters of the air have no everlasting soul either, but they can, by good deeds, shape one for themselves. We are flying to the hot countries where the stagnant air of pestilence kills men. There we waft coolness. We spread the perfume of the flowers through the air and send men new life and healing. When, for three hundred years, we have striven to do the good we can, we receive an immortal soul and have a share in the everlasting happiness of mankind. You, poor little mermaid, have striven for that for two for that too, with all your heart. You have suffered and endured and raised yourself into the world of spirits of the air. And you also, by good deeds, can shape yourself in an immortal soul in the space of 300 years. Damn. And the little mermaid raised her bright arms towards God's son. And for the first time, she felt the gift of tears. On the ship, there was stir and life again. She saw the prince with his fair bride seeking for her. In deep sorrow, they gazed down into the bubbling foam as if they knew she had cast herself into the waves. Unseen, she kissed the bride's forehead, and on him she smiled and then soared upward with the other children of the air to a rose-red cloud sailing in the heavens. Wait, so Little Mermaid kisses the bride on the forehead? Mm-hmm. Did I read that correctly? You did. What the fuck? That's her first fucking good deed. Fine. So, when the 300 years are over, we shall float into the heavenly kingdom and we may reach it yet sooner, whispered one of them. Unseen, we float into the homes of men, where children are. And for every day on which we find a good child that makes its parents happy and earns their oh, love, fuck. God shortens our time of trial. The child does not know it when we are flying through the room, and yet when we smile on it in happiness, a year is taken for the 300. But if we see a perverse and evil child, we have to weep in sorrow, and every tear we shed adds a day to the time of our trial. The end. Fuck. Yeah, this is one of the shittiest fairy tales ever. I fucking cried for days as a kid with this one. Of course you did. Yeah. Shit. Long live Disney. They did this shit right. Right? The only, th only thing missing was a wolf. <laughs> Hold on. I make it better. And as she dissolved in foam and Prince looked for her, he realized that... He made bad choice, and he actually liked little girl who slept on cushion 
outside this door better. And he, he <laughs> came back to land and went into green forest and he was like, oh, woe is me. And Wolf came out of forest and said, Prince, I can save you. But first, you must go to country that does not belong to you and get me sacred chalice of evil king dictator uh, so I can get water of life and water of death. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I, I nearly spit rum on the laptop. <laughs> I'm just saying, look, yes, Hans Christian yes. Andersen has a lot to answer for, and I'm about to explain yeah. why. But I give him some major props for what he did right. Holy crap. Yes. That was, this was not a children's, this was not a little kid's story. Is it? It was published in, in an anthology of fairy tales that he wrote. But who's the target audience? Children. In that time period. Children. Really? Children. Are you, oh my God. Well, Victorian I guess. Victorian children were hardened and cold. Okay. <laughs> Damn. No, but like it it had been I have consciously avoided this fairy tale since I I read it once when I was a kid and then once again in high school after I saw the movie and right. then I read it one more time like a, a few years like later into my 20s and I was like you know what fuck this it's an awful unhappy fairy tale yeah but wow reading it again literally like 25 years later um god i feel old. um i feel like sea foam <laughs> but like there's so much that i really didn't realize in terms of there's not only like this huge sexual subtext but there's also yeah. i mean the questions about death and what happens Right. And his doubts and like uh no dream, no thought, nothingness. Like it spoke to part of the reason I hated it was it spoke to every fear I had as a child because I wasn't raised religiously at all. Okay. I was raised as a morally inclined philosopher and humanist, but a scientifically inclined agnostic. So, you know, my, my parents exposed me literally to all different, I went to a Jewish preschool <laughs> Wow! where I played Queen Esther one year. Um, the best friends of our family were Muslim mm -hmm. and I grew up going to the masjid, which is what they actually call the mosque. So I went to masjid on Friday nights sometimes. I went to different parties. I went to – so they have a version of First Communion, which is when a kid starts to read the Quran in Arabic. Okay. And then there's another big party at the end when they finish reading the Quran. And really, it's – I think it's a scam by the caterers because you literally <laughs> have to cater a party big enough for – everybody at the masjid and you know that like what happens in the food line is 
all the bobbies go and take, you know, 10 parata and like all the chicken and like they bring it all back to the table and they're like, have another. Oh, wow. And then I went to a Catholic high school. I volunteered at a Catholic nursing home, the Little Sisters of the Poor. Like I married for the first time into a Jewish family. Um, And then Eric's family in varying degrees uh, is very Protestant and, you know, ranging from meh to almost evangelical Pentecostal. Yeah. So for me, I've, you know, my parents raised me and they're like, okay, there's one principle in Hinduism, like forget all the gods because at the end of the day, they're just like fingers of the hand of the one spirit. They're just as much incarnations as we are. Okay. And that's what namaste actually means. It means the divine spirit that animates me greets the same, my brother divine spirit that animates you. Interesting. That's why you say namaste in, in respectful greetings. So they said, you know, uh, in Hinduism, there's the principle of reincarnation, blah, blah, blah. But there's also a saying that all paths lead to God or the one spirit, the one animating force of the universe. Okay. And so they're like, you know, it doesn't matter if they're Jewish, if they're Muslim, if they're Hindu, if they're Catholic, if they're Baptist, you know, the, the sort of highest, most Ravenclaw academic abstract of Hindu philosophy is just be a good fucking person and let God handle the rest of it. Right. And that is a, in some degree, that's kind of the teaching that I came into when I converted to Catholicism because Mm -hmm. I was raised in that extreme Protestant evangelical upbringing Um, but it came with the mindset of we are the only ones that are right. Everyone else is burning in hell. Yeah. Catholics, they're going to burn in hell. Uh, Which is so funny because Catholics were like, uh, you know, originally pretty much the one who won the original cage fight. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, there were the Gnostics. There were like, there were like hundreds of little splinter groups, but the Catholics were the ones were like, we got the lions, we got the Roman army, like, just give (laughs) up. Right? Yeah. And so... And it may have just been the uniqueness of the group of Catholics that I encountered mm-hmm. um, that the mindset was very focus on you. Mm-hmm. You be a good person. Focus on yourself. Focus on how you can do better. What can you do that helps the rest of the world be a better place? Mm-hmm. Leave the judgment up to God because that's his role. That is very interesting because honestly, that is um 
not my experience of a lot of Catholics that I was exposed to. Like in Indiana, they were very like, you know, people my age were different, but like people our parents' age were much more dogmatic and strict. Ah, okay. Yes. Like, and I went to a Jesuit high school, which is kind of like black Catholic. (laughs) Like it is, you know. I don't know if you ever heard the prophecy that when a Jesuit becomes Pope, the end times are nigh and it's like the Antichrist and all that. It'll be into the Catholic Church. And um, I had, yeah, I don't get into any of that. It's, yeah. So, whatever. I'd heard it and my mom had heard it because I volunteered at the Little Sisters of the Poor, who were amazing because literally, you had to be poverty stricken to be taken in to the Mm. home. And they, uh, you know, they did not, uh, you know, take rich people. And part of my mom's job, because she worked there for 21 years as their social worker, was to look into their finances. And if she saw that, like, up until two months ago, this person had like $3 million and suddenly it disappeared from their accounts. Yeah. You know, and so many people like they only had a limited number of, you know, varying levels of care rooms. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, she spent so much time talking to people who didn't even come in and talking to their families and trying to help them. And it, you know, my mom had a, thing where she greeted them when they officially moved in and even the funeral home people knew to wait for her to show up because she always walked them out. Wow. And the nuns were uh, amazing because if they knew somebody was starting to go, they started a 24-7 vigil. Oh, wow. So nobody died alone. Wow. That's that's incredible. Yeah. And yeah. my mom got them to accept the uh, first Jewish resident. Wow. And she arranged to they, – they had Protestant residents before, but she arranged and got their permission to have like – a Protestant minister come on Sundays. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like my mom was kind of a bit of a rabble rouser when she was there. She started the books on tape for the blind program there. She, yeah, she, uh, she got the first HIV positive patient resident admitted there and she floored them all by shaking his hand. Oh yeah. When Mm -hmm. he came in. Right, because in that when it was new in the nineties, everyone was terrified. Yeah, I mean Ryan that, White yeah. was from Indiana, so okay, you know uh, his, you know this was something I kind of missed in the first three read throughs I did, but now I'm like, oh my god, Hans Christian Andersen for all his like really big. Um, you know, Christian and moral viewpoints and values, he was 
he was asking questions that right tortured me for my childhood because I wasn't raised to believe in God and heaven. Right, right. I was raised from the get-go. And even when my grandfather died when I was four, like, well, we don't know. So just be a good person because it'll make you happy when you're alive. And if there's something that happens after you're dead, then that's a bonus because most likely any God that's big enough to create the universe won't really care what four walls you worshipped in, or even if you worshipped. Yeah. So anyway, exactly. that's, that's the religious discursiveness. But I also really admire his Ravenclaw perspective <laughs> on the little details of what it's like to be a fish looking at the world above. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, so much of what was coming from the Little Mermaid's family, the sisters Mm -hmm. and everything. It was like reading out of a script from from my upbringing. Like when the sisters came with the knife and gave the Little Mermaid the knife, Mm -hmm. it was like... Oh my God, this is triggered content warning. Yeah. Well, for <laughs> me, it was like yeah. PTSD, mm. the, the brainwashing of you have to cut the ties with this evil in order to save yourself. Oh, see, that's fascinating because I, ne- I never saw it like that. Wow. I yeah, saw me, it. This was as, the brainwashing. See, I saw it as a you know, first of all, the sea witch lied because she said you can never go back to being a mermaid. Whoops, give me your hair and you'll be a mermaid again. Right. 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 Yeah. And um, then and then, you know, um it was a chance. It was literally the one chance that we never get in life, which was to get a, a true mulligan. Hi, Pod Dog. I know. Hang on. He, I can hear. He's like scratching or something. Oh, he wants to go out and then he wants to come back in and he wants to go out. And yeah, but literally like, uh, you know, that's the mulligan, but there's a price. And see, I'm getting more of a prodigal son parallel. Yeah. Like the Little Mermaid left the straight and narrow, mm-hmm. went off and had her little fling and had her party, and it didn't turn out so well for her. It didn't turn out the way she wanted. And so the they were trying to bring her back in, and you you can come back to us. Mm-hmm. We will We will bring you home. And then- you know, there was also the 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 guilt trip, which the the passive is this passive aggressive? Our old grandmother has been mourning till her white hair has fallen off. Like, look what you've done to the family. Yeah, that that is a little bit like <laughs> Yeah, that is passive aggressive, but on the other hand, like 
sometimes people don't know how to express their true feelings and their love and their pain. Yeah. In a healthy way. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm working with this concept a lot in uh, Thunderstruck, which is what I'm writing right now. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, um, Helen, the, you know, protagonist, but sidekick from Downcast, she's protagonist in Thunderstruck. She, she has a lot on her plate. And, you know, given what I've described of her family, eh, you know, the fact that she was able to actually have a close friendship with Stephanie and Morris was a big thing. But, you know, when it comes to actually, okay, pod dog, there you go, um, (laughs) expressing pain and stuff, like, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, but I need to move on because uh, we got a bit more. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, I told you this was long. I see there's more notes. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of notes. Don't scroll down until I tell you. Okay, I'm just sitting here at your little interesting facts about the story. Yes, and I'm not okay. scrolling beyond the end of that page. There you go. Okay, so it was originally published in 1837, as I mentioned. Which the we established working- 200, not 400 years ago. <laughs> Are you sure you're the the one that's good with math in this group? I promise I am. I do the math when I'm sober. Yeah. So the working title, and we actually have some pages of his old manuscript, was Daughters of the Air. Okay, so that's fascinating. Where can I look at? No, no, I did. I take that question back. I do not need to live Google images just, of the yeah don't live google yet i'll if you're very good i'll give you a picture of it at the end okay so interestingly um a very popular mermaid story called undine was published in 1811 and was about a mermaid who fell in love with a human prince and gets a soul by marrying the prince <gasps> sound familiar <laughs> Fan fiction riff much, Hans. Serious? He stole the story? Nothing is new. Holy shit. Nothing is new. Oh, my God. But, and he's the one that gets all the fame and fortune. Well, I don't know if he got Nothing is new. I think Undine got made into an opera, but whatever. Are you kidding me? Oh. Yeah, I think we'll have to do Undine as like a bonus to the bonus. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, the public's Hopefully reaction to the ending of The Little Mermaid, as it was eventually titled, was yes. a lot of shock and outrage. Well, yeah. They felt it was really disturbing, even for Victorian children who were raised up on some pretty horrible, gruesome, tragic fairy tales anyway. Like, <laughs> if you can grim shock a Victorian, you're winning. <laughs> like... You know, there were blue-eyed, blonde, innocent virgins who had already prepared, like, three or four bodies for burial by the time they were 18. Like, Oh, my God. Yeah. That's just how life was back then. Yeah. So it is interesting to note that there is a heroine who is so fixated and curious and wanting to investigate so much. And 
you know, he takes a lot of pains and a lot of words to um, point out that she's in love with the human world long before she's in love with the prince. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Not mine. It, I credit the academics and I will include all the links. Okay. Fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of analysis on this, but put a pin in that because it's going to relate to something that's coming up like in about three more points. Okay. So uh, Anderson had a lot of issues and questions about identity and changeability. Like he wrote Thumbelina, he wrote, you know, a bunch of different stories where the characters shift from one form to another. You know, he wrote The Ugly Duckling. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I never picked up on that common theme. Yeah. And so we actually see this really pointedly in The Little Mermaid. Like we see tails to legs. Right. And then we see her cross-dressing. In boys' clothes. Oh, right. Because the, the prince gave her yeah. quote, a boy's dress. Yeah. I guess dress was dress a clothes. generic term. Okay. Dress as in dress clothes. Okay. Got it. All right. Or dress as in manner of dressing. Okay. Got it. It wasn't a dress that was specifically designed for a boy. It was just sort of a generalized definition of the word to refer to style. Got it. Okay. And, you know, also he's, you thought he was just salty when he talked about the gossip, but there is a, that's my favorite part. (laughs) Literally, it has to be out of this all whole fucking horrible (laughs) fairy tale. Um, But there's a lot of fetishizing of the relationship between vanity and pain. Okay. So the first instance is the oyster ornaments. You know, as you're saying this, I'm, yeah, this is kink. It's not just kink. It it is kink commentary. Oh my God. Because there are, so the accepted manner of fetishizing is the oyster ornaments. But then you get into the less accepted yet somehow emotionally justified areas of kink like cutting off her tongue dancing Mm. beautifully despite feeling knives her feet bled as she climbed a mountain but she laughed okay and then even the sisters in the end cut off their hair all right interesting yeah, it there are layers upon layers. Now, wow. I have saved the this is the meat of the dish I am serving. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So there have always there's always been a controversy about Ursula in The Little Mermaid. Yes, because I didn't. there was you you mentioned there, earlier that there was her bosom. Uh, okay, yeah. Big boobs. Um, and yeah, I wasn't aware that that was a topic until you mentioned it. 
Yeah, I I really hadn't seen much about it until the 2010s, to be honest. Okay. And, and maybe it existed before, but I wasn't going back to look at fairy tales until I started researching The Little Mermaid on my own because I was writing a short story about it, um, which I'll share with you uh, oh, at some point. That's a lit crick. A lit. I've it, gotten to the bottom finished. of my glass. Yeah, it, it's not finished, but it's disturbing. Anyway, but Ursula yeah. was not only they wondered if she was meant to be a overweight black woman. Okay. Um they uh kind of criticized Disney for quote unquote fat shaming. Um, and there was also, you know, Ursula looks like a fucking drag queen and yeah, she kind of does. I hadn't well and thought of that. Hold that thought, put a pin, Uh put a secondary pin in that because (laughs) there's a whole theory behind the, you know, eighties, nineties and early two thousands queer coding of Disney villains. What? Like, look at Jafar. <gasps> oh my God. Look at Gaston and LeFou. Ooh. Look at the, um, did you ever see the frog prince? Or the yes. princess and the frog? So Once. the voodoo priest. Hey, that's too fuzzy. I don't remember the voodoo priest. Yeah, but, I mean okay. he's he's yeah. very sort of Eddie Murphy, but even thinner and taller and more flamboyant. Okay, so they're going with the cliches. I'm just saying that starting with the Little Mermaid, there was a distinct trend of quote unquote queer coding. Okay. In the villains. Interesting. even more interesting is the true story behind the story. Ooh. So. Okay. Hans Christian Andersen had a wealthy upper class sponsor for his writing work, Jonas Collin. Okay. And Collin had seen him on the stage and. Actually, Anderson had written two little couple minor plays and they performed it. And Colin was a patron of that theater. And he's like, oh, this kid has talent. I mean, it's grim, but he has talent. And so (laughs) he's like, you know what? Because back in those days to uh, be the patron of a uh, of an up and coming artist, it it was a form of gambling. Uh, and okay. the thrill and credit, social credit and social wealth you would get if horseradish, hang on. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, sending a message to Eric. Yep. To get him out and keep him out. I love you, horseradish pod dog, but I, I really need to focus. Um, <laughs> so to you know, risk time and money on an artist is 
like, you know, a director casting an unknown and hoping they make it big. Okay, got it. Because then, you know, so-and-so, the star discovered by blah, 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 the director. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, so they get some credit as well. They get some fame on... Yeah, and in the old days, it was like, bitch, I got money to burn. I don't (laughs) just pay for this mansion. I'm supporting a fucking penniless artist. (laughs) So Colin brought Anderson to live with his family at the age of 17. Now, remember, at 14, his voice broke. Right, right. So he was kind of transitioning into writing for the stage. And Colin was like, oh, that's cool. So he brought Anderson home to live with his family. And Anderson became friends with Jonas's son, Edvard. Okay. Okay, I think I see where this is going. Well, in fact, they became really good friends as Edvard helped Anderson sort of with remedial Latin grammar and other lessons. And as they got older, Anderson's feelings for Edvard became more intense. Mm-hmm. You guessed it, Hans Christian Anderson fell in love with Edvard Collin. Oh. Now, uh, scroll down to where I have uh, highlighted. Okay. Got it. And please read these snippets of letters and poems he wrote to Edvard. Oh, he wrote love letters? Yeah, he wrote love letters. You want me to read all of them? Because I see there's more than one. Yes. Okay. Okay. I long for you, yes, this moment I long for you, as if you were a lovely girl. No one have I wanted to thrash as... Oh my god! Victorian subtext. I don't think that's even subtext. Thrash? As much as you. I mean, that's like their version of fuck, right? But neither has anyone been loved so much by me as you. I love you so much, I want to fuck you. Well, (laughs) trash is more like, I don't know if I'm going to kill you or kiss you. That's more. Oh, okay. Because thrashing equates to beating. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So this isn't like a a double meaning kind of... No, thrash is not a double entendre. It means like... You infuriate me. Uh, okay. And I love you, goddammit. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Next note. My sentiments for you are those of a woman. The femininity of my nature and our friendship must remain a mystery. So is he basically saying we got to keep this on the down low? Well, yes, But I would also point out to you, so these two letters, um, in the first one, he is expressing his love for Edward as if he's a man desiring a woman. Right. But in the next quote, he's expressing his desire for Edward as if he's a woman desiring a man. Right. So he's taking on the feminine 
traditionally right. feminine top or bottom basically at that point. Yeah. Is he the dog and or the sub? Ex- exactly. <laughs> and I think what he's saying is I don't know how or why to explain I turned out like this. And I don't know why I feel all these different ways of desiring you. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Poor. He's so confused. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's one more note. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my god! I have to read this first sentence. Are you yes, serious? Yes, you do because Rosebud <laughs> didn't mean what it meant today in erotica. Shit, Rosebud, so firm and round, lovely as a young girl's mouth. I kiss you as my bride. The poem continues with further kisses and an exhortation to feel my fire. Oh shit. This sounds like something Loki would write. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I I would peg this more as if Odin kept a journal. Okay. Yeah. Because it, while yes, it's kind of wildly ranging over the whole pansexual spectrum, there's there's an angst about denial. Yeah. That yeah. is Odin. Because Loki would never <laughs> deny himself. And that's what this gets him is into true. fucking trouble every time. This is, yes, exactly. You're right. You're so right. You're if right. you scroll down just a little more, you will see two pictures. Oh, yes. On the left is uh, Hans Christian Andersen. Okay. And on the right is Edvard Colin. They both, I mean, I'm trying to put myself in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. They both look like handsome fellows. So um, Edward Cullen was, especially in his youth, like in his early 30s, when he would have been the object of Anderson's desire, okay. was probably extremely handsome. Like, mm. Give him a little more hair, take away some of the sure. lines, smooth yeah. out the nose and jawline a bit. Like, yeah. 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 He would have been one of those, you know, blonde, blue-eyed, <laughs> my type kind of guys. Right. Just yeah. saying. Yeah. And yep. Hans Christian Andersen, if you look a little closer at his photo, he actually is kind of odd looking. He um, has a, so his nose a, looks a little long. Maybe this is a very flattering angle of him. Okay, you can live Google other <laughs> images that are not so flattering. But I was trying to be kind because I felt sorry for him, even though he wrote the world's shittiest fairy tale. <laughs> um, just needed so, a wolf. <laughs> In 1836, Edvard announced he was getting married to a young woman named Henriette. Oh, 1836. Wait, I'm scrolling back. Shit, the the Little Mermaid was the year after. 
You can't give me numbers and not expect me to do math. I know, but just hold on. Hold on. Because I'm doing it for the audience, not you. Anderson was devastated and actually really angry. I bet. he, He hid all of it under a smile. Supporting oh. his friend and even corresponding with Henriette. But hey. when Edvard wrote him a letter before the wedding, calling him a worthy friend, oh. he lost it. Of course he did. So when Edvard was younger, he... He was like, huh, what, why is this guy like so like aggressively friendly? But, you know, as he got older, he was like, oh, shit, I get it now. And he was trying to let him down as gently as he could. I mean, Anderson literally, like those three l- quotes are from three different letters. Like the, it's really right, intense. Right, right. Like he is a dog with a bone. He won't give up. And Edward's yeah. like, well, yeah, uh, no, I mean, you're a great friend. I love you like a brother. Um, I'm getting engaged to a girl. You know, mm. he's trying to let him know that I just don't swing that way, even in a bi or pan way. Like, it just doesn't right. work for me. Right. And it's not a fault of Anderson's. It's not a fault of Edward's. Anderson he just fell in love with the wrong guy. Or, you know, not necessarily even the wrong guy, just the wrong gender. With, fell in love with someone who didn't swing the same yeah. way to to make it work. It's just Ex- an unfortunate. Exactly. So, I mean, and, and if anything, yeah. you know, this goes back to prove that um, sexual preference. And gender orientation really doesn't have a whole lot to do with uh, nurture. It's nature. Because Hans Christian Andersen was born in a poor conservative family. He had a very strict religious moral code as he was growing up. And suddenly he's in love with a man. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's how we get the worthy friend comment that pissed off Anderson who turned around and wrote this letter back at him. And I'm going to ask you to really channel some rage in this one. Okay. Mm. All right. Why do you call me your worthy friend? Air quotes. I don't want to be worthy. That is the most insipid boring word you could use. Any fool can be called worthy. I have hotter blood than you and half of Copenhagen. Edward, I feel so infuriated by this loathsome weather. I also long for you to shake you, to see your hysterical laughter, to be able to walk away insulted and not come back home to you for two whole days. I'm going to laugh at the two days part. That's hysterical. Yeah. Hashtag Victorian <laughs> subtext. Because this thing is fucking dripping with it. Okay. So break it down then. What's going on there? I, All right. What's the so, subtext? 
So the friend zoning con uh, comments of the first, basically before the dot, dot, dot. Okay. Uh, those are whatever your gender or preference, like that is a universal reaction in the heart of hearts of everybody who has ever been friend zoned. Right. Sure. Yeah. And I, I grant him that because I, I grant him that to a degree. And if he had stopped there, I get it because he's trying to communicate something super, super fucking difficult, especially in the 1830s in Denmark, which although, you know, there was kind of a mild little like pocket of renaissance of like quasi queer acceptable culture in Copenhagen, but it's still, yeah, no, um, it wasn't great to be out. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's making his literal last ditch effort to lay it all out there for Edward. And, um, he had actually left Copenhagen and gone to this Island, I think called Finn or fine. Okay. And, um, that's where he was uh, writing this letter from. And so the hot blood longing for him. Yeah. What's, I mean, a longing for you. I get that. Yeah. That's pretty well, straightforward. Hotter blood, I mean, there's always been this kind of um, stereotype of the uh, Scandinavian types from Iceland to Denmark to Finland, the whole region, they're like, well, you know, they're very reserved. They might say, I love you on their deathbed. Like they're very like, <laughs> okay, you know, calm, cool, like, uh, you know, arm's length, even with affection. And so he's saying, I have passion that is boiling over and okay. it's just because you know it it's unacceptable for me to express it but mm. if i could the rest of copenhagen would be like damn he hot <laughs> right 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 and then the end kind of takes a little bit of a disturbing term because yeah. he seems to be really having this very vivid fantasy of living with Edward as like mates and partners in a way that was familiar enough to actually have an argument and sulk. Right. To be able to you know, walk away and not come back for two days. Yeah. Like, come find me if you really want me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's the whole passive aggressive. Yeah. Of, you know, well, if you don't know what's wrong, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> the Little Mermaid is actually, actually a cautionary tale about what a woman really means when she says, 
I'm fine. (laughs) Or at least speaks to you uh, with her eyes saying, I'm fine. So go down to my next highlight, just on the next page. And Edward, you know, in his older years was not insensible to this. And he wasn't unkind. He wasn't cruel in his rejection. He wasn't homophobic. He wrote this in his own memoir later. Okay. I found myself unable to respond to this love. And this caused the author much suffering. Oh, yeah. It's it's so genuine. Yeah. He's, you know, it's very simple, but it's a very straightforward comment. And, you know, the more research I did, the more I found that, like, he had literally tried to be like, haha, play it off, like, pretend to be ignorant, pretend not to notice. Like, he was trying his best as best he knew how in the 18 fucking thirties. And they were at what age they were both. They were So this would have started when they were in their late teens, early twenties and for over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Anderson was obsessing over this. Yeah. So awkward, awkward, especially when your dad is the patron of this brilliant author who gets a lot of attention. Yeah. And you like him. Like, you genuinely like him. Yep. And you feel horrible that, like, literally it's, I just don't swing that way. Like, (laughs) you know, I would if I could, but I can't. Right. Yeah. We are who we are. And if that is not a message for accepting LGBTQI, I don't know what is. We or are just who we are. Accepting anyone, anyone yes. and everyone. Exactly. We love who we love. Have you ever yeah. seen a movie called Chasing Amy? I think I saw that. It sounds incredibly it's part familiar. All rats and right. adventures of uh uh Jay and Silent Bob kind of yeah. uh, saga that Kevin, what's his name? did but you know i I think i saw it but i i don't remember much i I don't remember enough of it to say oh yeah that movie blah 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 okay so there's amy and she's really pretty and she's got a guy that she's attracted to who's one of the protagonists and then there's another woman that she's attracted to and So she's clearly bi. Okay. And the story is basically how the male protagonist comes to accept the fact that there are women who can love both women and men. And, okay. you know, it, it, it actually involves comics, which is kind of funny because – you know, there are so many nods to Marvel in there. Ah, okay. And uh, Amy is, I think, either an illustrator or a colorist for a comic artist. But <laughs> basically, she ex- tries to explain her orientation to the protagonist. And she said, 
if you look at the sheer statistics of humanity, finding someone who is your true love is so, like, I'm paraphrasing, off the charts, improbable and rare. Right. That why, if I feel like this, why would I limit it to one gender or another? Why would I cut out half my options just because other people say I should? Right. Wow. That's profound. Isn't it? Like, literally, I have fleeting glimpses of the rest of the movie, but I remember that line because, Mm. you know, I'm straight, but I went to Vassar and, you know, even straight women have moments of fantasy. And I think it's, it's like, you know, it doesn't, the difference is where you act and where you fantasize, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Like there are certain things you read in novels that you're like, Ooh, that's really hot. But then, you know, I don't know, like riding a horse together. Um, <laughs> The physics don't work, and it's actually uncomfortable. You know this firsthand? I mean, I Uh rode Uh horses in my teens. Okay. I was a a competitive hunter-jumper. Wow. Yeah. So English English style? English saddle. Okay. English saddle. English saddle. uh, And I took um, full-on stallions over five-foot jumps. Wow. And I was actually being groomed to enter the competition circuit to get enough points for the Olympics because uh, my instructor was like, no, she's good. She could go all the way. Wow. And then when I was 14 – uh, my dad and I were rear-ended by a drunk driver. Oh, dear. We were at a dead stop about to take a left turn onto our little lane. And yeah. this guy rear-ended us and, um, yeah, cracked a couple of bones in my dad's back and uh, did some serious damage to my back. And... Mm. The Indiana cop who showed up in his mirror reflective aviators. Oh, damn. Called my dad boy. I've heard that before. Yeah, you've told it. Oh, my God. Well, that was just, that was another time. Right. Yeah. Oh, multiple times. He got called boy multiple times. (laughs) And didn't even write up a an incident report because it turned out that the other man was like an executive at the local NBC affiliate. Are you kidding? Oh my God. All right. Yeah. So he got a ticket for a fender bender. Wow. When we ended up having to total our car and I had had medical bills. Well, that, and I had to go to a doctor, uh, an orthopedic, specialist and have a back brace molded. Wow. And I wore a back brace through the rest of my freshman year and my sophomore year. Ugh. 
and I couldn't bend down. Like even to this day, like I've got like, you can sort of see if you look really hard at my x-rays, like little micro fractures all through my vertebrae. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, moving on. Um, I don't know how we got there, but oh, horses. Yeah. This is going to be like I, a 10 I, hour episode. It is. But you know what? It This is a crucial one because it's so emotionally important to our foundations. It is. And I think a lot of people out there love the Little Mermaid from Disney. And yes. And there's so much that Disney Brit did bring over. I, I used to think that Disney like did a shit job of interpreting it, but now that I've read the act, you know, really paid attention to the detail in the original, yeah. I'm like, Disney carried it as far as they fucking could up until the yeah. uh ending. And they had to turn tone certain things down. So like, sure. you know, instead of becoming seafoam and a daughter of the air, she becomes like a little wilted plant if she fails. Right, 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 you know? right, right. So, you know, they had to turn tone certain things down for our little snowflake kitty generation, apparently. Well, because you know what? We're not- that's, that little wilted plant, that's the grandmother referring to the seaweed that when it gets cut down, it will not grow back a green again. I never made that connection, and you did. Fuck hashtag Ravenclaw. So Anderson published The Little Mermaid in 1837, (laughs) the year after Edward's marriage and their falling out. So falling out? Oh, wait. I mean, Edward and and Anderson's falling out. Yeah, Not Edward's marriage and then falling out with the bride. Right. Okay, marriage is fine. It's Edward and Anderson falling out. Yeah. Okay, got it. Basically, um, you know, the Little Mermaid is kind of a fan fiction about his own failed romance. Yes, horseradish. Horseradish agrees, 100%. Well, Meadow just came in and is like, (laughs) um... Bitch, it's time for dinner. I'll be out there in a minute. This won't go that much longer. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean, when you started telling this whole story about him and Edward, I'm like, oh my God, he's the little mermaid. Yeah. The statue, the unattainable, cold, remote image of a loved one. And then the prince whom she loved and the prince's marriage to someone else. And, yep. You know, oh, fucking- and then when you said that he, uh, Anderson was corresponding with what was the the chick Henrietta name? Henrietta, and the Little Mermaid kissed, kissed the bride the on the forehead. Yep. Are you freaking kidding me? If that is not a sort of ostentatious self righteousness, yeah, of. I am a martyr and so good. Watch me forgive you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's what really always gets me about people who are like, I'm so Christian or I'm yes. so devout. Like not even Christian, but like just I'm so devout, but 
It's right. majority Christian because that's like the community I'm exposed to and grew up around and whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, they're like, watch how amazingly devout I am and so good. Oh, yeah. I feel I'm patting myself on the back. If you want to pat my shoulder too, you can. Here, I'll make yeah. room for you. Yep. Those are the people that were brainwashing me. And and it's a passive, aggressive mindfuck. It's so bad. So toxic. And, and I, you know, I kind of think of, so obviously I'm a intense consumer. I devour content, especially if it's grim and weird and dark. Uh because I can. <laughs> okay. Because I'm a grown up now and I can right? choose what I want. Yeah, um, so can I. I can read whatever the fuck filthy erotica hot whatnot. Copenhagen. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I can well, read you know, it all. Look, yeah, you don't have to use Victorian, hashtag Victorian subtext right. anymore. But Thank God. Yeah, right? So, um, the, you know, the, the, there are cases of people who have escaped one cult who kind of find themselves falling into another. Okay, so now my brain says, but isn't everything a cult by that argument? Well, there are – so Steve Hassan, who is a psychologist and a lifelong scholar and expert on cults because he was actually in the Moonies when he, oh, okay. he got recruited into the Moonies in college and was there for a couple of years until his family was like, pull the fucking plug, and they like literally kidnapped him <laughs> out of it. All righty. Um, but he has – literally devoted his life to studying cults and the way we get in and out of cults in unhealthy and healthy ways. So, okay. Um, a religion is by the strictest, any religion or system of belief by the strictest definition is a cult. Right. Because it cult literally means group of people who believe the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. That is its purest definition. So the fact that we offer, we make offerings to Odin for our, the quality of our recordings means <laughs> that the four of us are a cult. And we're not a very good one because our recording has been you know I noticed tonight. that it was just the story. He didn't like the story. He I don't blame like him. The story. Oh my god, you're right. Right, because our recording since then has been fabulous. Okay, now this might also play a role. I finished my drink around the time the story ended as well, so he could have a problem with my drink. I got a mm. refill. <laughs> I texted Eric. I'm like, refill, you please. Damn. <laughs> I should have texted Violet. <laughs> right? I don't know. I'm, I'm I kind of like down though. on Violet right now because she goddamn taught you that confetti thing. Oh, totally. 
Yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to pick up my phone right now and I'm going to send you more confetti. (laughs) No, you know what? I'm going to post that shit on Instagram. Anyway, but the, you know, a cult. So remember how I mentioned cult baiting language in the Socrates episode this week? That sounds familiar. So I, I, I'm like, Socrates used cultivating language, and there's actually a whole process. And this is, this is where my 2% Ravenclaw comes into play, because I'm like, so what's the process? How does it work? How's the effect? What's the actual calibration of words to reaction? Like, you know. <laughs> right. God right, damn right. it, you send me confetti. I did. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> There are, just like with everything in life, and what Mm -hmm. I think kind of we as an entire society and culture and maybe entire species have forgotten, is that there are shades of gray. Um, Yeah. Not everything is yes, no, zero, one, absolute polar opposite. Which is the environment I was raised in. And which is pretty much our political system right now and a lot of world politics right now. So we're just even when even to the point they contradict themselves and they're hypocritical. Yes. Anyway, moving on. Because a a perceived principle that we are invested in means more than an actual truth. Yeah. And I made that up myself. Thank you very okay. much. You can fucking quote me on that. Okay. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, so a cult can be a very healthy thing. Like, okay. if yeah. you and five friends get together and you guys all want to lower your cholesterol numbers through diet and exercise. Yes. And you believe you have an end goal idea that you can do this. Yes. That's great. Yep. Um, so running But then you can also take cults. it to an extreme, which is kind of like some of the CrossFit gyms out there. Oh. <laughs> See? I'm sure there are people who do well with those. I'm sure. And but don't they, view them as extremes. But yeah. But, I get your point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm saying some CrossFit gyms, not all, but there are a number <laughs> that are very intense. Got it. So the, you know, there are certain aspects of cult baiting language that lure you in. For example, so- right. so there's like something called uh thought ending uh phrases. So for example, uh, but I have the right is kind of a thought ending phrase. Interesting. Okay. Or, hmm. um, you know, this was written in the Bible or this was written in the Talmud or this was written oh. in the Quran or this was written in Zoroaster's writings like any reference to the bible says that's like a trigger for me right well what happens is we like if you've ever tried to argue with somebody who is a very 
devout, not necessarily literalist, but just extremely devout. And Mm -hmm. you take them through a logical set of arguments. You run into a brick wall where they fall over the edge like Humpty Dumpty into a literalist interpretation. Okay. Like you're trying to say, but you know, by the way you reckon Mahatma Gandhi would have gone to hell. Oh, by the way I was raised, he would. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like, because he wasn't a Protestant Christian. Right. Mahatma Gandhi would have gone to hell. Uh, uh, Chen Long, one of the most respected and wisest Chinese emperors who led, you know, China through a a reign of unprecedented peace and prosperity. Kate would have gone to hell. In my parents' definition, Mother Teresa went to hell. What? Because she was not a born again Christian. But I mean, she accepted Jesus. She was a Catholic. She the prayed Catholics to Mary. Are just Protestants who believe they have a middleman. <laughs> not even that. They really don't. When you get into the real facts of it, they don't. I had to correct that misconception. I know, but that's the common perception. Yeah, I had to correct that misconception with my mother. But yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in but in my mother's mind, the Catholics pray to dead people. I mean, it's not exactly. Anne Frank would have gone to hell because she was a yeah. Jew. Yeah. So yeah. you know, Jews are going to hell. Catholics are going to hell. In fact, half the Protestants are probably going to hell too because they're the wrong flavor of Protestant. Yeah. yeah, and you know, so that's where you start to get a cult that has thought-ending language. Yeah. Or, for example, you've heard of Jonestown, right? I'm not sure. Jonestown is where we get the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Oh, yes. Okay. Got it. So about 930 people died. Because they drank Kool-Aid. But not Kool-Aid literally. It was literally Flavor-Aid. But Kool-Aid was easier and more jargony because the power of advertising. So it was literally purple flavor aid laced with cyanide. Yep. And Jim Jones, it all of it literally happened over the space of 36 hours. Because there was a congressional visit by Leo Congressman Leo Ryan, who um, it, you know. It went well until it didn't. And right, right, right. Yeah. Literally, Jim Jones was like, this is the end because once one thing fails and one person leaves the cult, everything's over. Yeah. 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 So anyway, um yeah, I'm I'm gonna bring the tangent back. I just but, typed a note to Kate in the notes. Bring the tangent back. <laughs> But this is all fascinating. It, it's fascinating because you can see the interplay of beliefs and brainwashing and conditioning because the prince yeah. favors her. The prince 
Right. Let's her sleep on a silk cushion. The prince plays with her Outside hair her and door in the hallway <laughs> and kisses her red lips, which basically means he fucks her. Right. Yeah. He's a horny 17-year-old boy. And exactly. She's and I don't a foundling. Care what century you're in, a horny 17-year-old boy is a horny 17-year-old boy. No matter the biology for being a solid, unchanging truth. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So, anyway, we'll have more theology because we actually want to do a series on this. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think you and me together would be fascinating on it because just, yeah. Anyway. So, The Little Mermaid to bring it all back, is a fan fiction about his own failed romance. Right. With Edward Cullen. And it's kind of like Romeo and Juliet meets revenge porn meets fan fiction. I did get some Romeo and Juliet vibes every time they talked. 15. Well, that and but when they were talking about one on a balcony thinking they're alone while the other is watching from the bushes. Didn't that happen in Romeo and Juliet? Yeah. She thought she was alone on a balcony Where in the moonlight. Where art Romeo? Yeah. Yeah. So. Wait, and wait, now wait. That was you there know subtext that- in that too? Was she uh, master? Was Juliet masturbating on the, on yeah. the balcony? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was 14, but 14 is old enough. Yeah, it Just is. saying. Oh, fuck. Damn, so shit. bringing that tangent back. <laughs> God bless anybody who listens this long. Uh, Noreen, Ivan, and Claire. <laughs> if they make it. This might be too much for them. You know what? I say Noreen and Claire are going to make it. Yeah, Ivan, Ivan, he was out a long time ago. <laughs> Ivan was like, oh, God damn, it's Disney. <laughs> he was out in the first five minutes. <laughs> he was like, I'm not going to be Maybe. part of your world. <laughs> He's like, I, I got the Senjis to take care of. So anyway. Anyway, yes. Anderson rebounded and fell in love again in 1854. Oh, that was like 15 years later. Look, (laughs) there might have been people in between were going off. He censored his own writing in his journals quite extensively. Oh, okay. Like, you know, no one else might read it, but God is watching. Oh, shit. Yeah. So that's my my mother in my head. So he fell in love again to the point he felt compelled to write it down in his journal. And this time it was with Carl Alexander, the Grand Duke of Saxe Weimar Eisenach. Okay. Which is one of those. It's a small German principality that I have no idea what the fuck it was or where it was or how long it lasted. And that's okay. Because the only thing that matters is the Grand Duke loved him back. (gasps) 
Oh. And maybe by this point, Anderson was a little bit more clued into how the world works. Okay. And because he and Carl Alexander had kind of a series of summer flings. Okay. So every summer they'd kind of get together and hang out all summer between 1854 and 1857. Oh. Anderson would go on summer vacation with the Grand Duke of Saxe Weimar Eisenach. Okay. And even though after 1857, it seems like their affair fizzled out a bit, it didn't seem like it was a bitter or rancorous ending. Like, they continued to correspond until Anderson's death. Okay. So it was more like one of those things like, ah, yeah, okay, fine. You know, like, it's been good. I'm good. You're good. We're good. Of course, there's okay. probably sadness and all that, but it wasn't like one of those, I fucking hate you breakups. <laughs> so um, I'd he like you to read a, a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, this would, this would not be a Taylor Swift song. This would be like a musical, Broadway musical reminiscence. Ah, um, good. And I'd like okay. you to read it from okay. his journal. The hereditary Grand Duke walked arm in arm with me across the courtyard of the castle to my room, kissed me lovingly, asked me always to love him, though he was just an ordinary person, asked me to stay with him this winter, fell asleep with the melancholy, happy feeling that I was the guest of this strange prince at his castle and loved by him. It is like a fairy tale. Bam! Bringing it home. Full circle. So if you scroll down, there's actually a portrait of Carl Alexander, and I will put this all in the post. Okay, he's a little... So at this point, Carl... Uh, He's um, a little dorky looking. I'm going to go for dorky. But you know, certainly- if you take the mustache and you restyle the hair, yeah. he probably would have been cute in a young, youth is always cute to a degree kind of way. Yeah. Agreed. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But he doesn't look like a mean person. Absolutely. He looks like he, a very kind person. He looks like he's trying really hard. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I can see why they probably remained friends. I can see why they continued to correspond. I can see why he called himself. I mean, a grand duke was basically the same as a prince or a king. Okay. It was literally one level below a king. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's Carl Alexander, and bless him for giving him a couple of good summers. So after that, a few years later, Anderson had a pretty intense affair with a young dancer named Harald Schroff from the winter of 1861 to the fall of 1863. Okay. 
He was so infatuated that he couldn't even keep to the subdued behavior and no PDA rules of society, especially if you were gay. Wow. Like he literally caused a scandal because he was just like PDA gropey dopey. In November of 1863, Schraff kind of ghosted him, but Anderson was also kind of over it anyway. Um, okay. Because they would meet in social circles and events without bitterness, and Anderson even tried to rekindle the affair a couple times. But we got more fan fiction out of this. Anderson wrote The Snowman about Schroff. I don't know that I've ever heard that unless it's the story of Frosty. Okay. And you'll see a picture of Schroff. Is that like a golf club over his shoulder or something of that nature? He's, um, it's a promotional picture for a play or an opera operetta he was in. And he's some sort of peasant character, which is why he looks the way he looks. Okay. So there's actually some debate about whether Anderson was involved sexually with his quote unquote romantic partners because he very clearly had a lot of religious and moral hangups. And in his early life, he wrote in his journals about refusing to have sexual relations with anyone. And while there's a great deal of innuendo and even public displays of affection, there is nothing in his journals or letters or other people's journals or letters that is credible to a large degree that makes it a hundred percent certain either way. Wow. So there's a, you know, and I'm not great with all the new terminology, but this is the way I've seen it described that he was asexual, but pansexual. Okay. So that he really didn't want to, or feel like have, having sex, but that he had romantic attachments and attractions and feelings. Okay. I get that a lot of times too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I get, I get that. I, but in his specific case, I don't think that was it. I think he probably did the deed the deed <laughs> with at least the Duke, if not Schroff. Okay. Got which it. Which I hope he did because then, you know, there's something about physical intimacy that really goes to our dopamine centers and eases right? loneliness. So anyway, yeah. Anderson wasn't actually strictly homosexual. If anything, he was bisexual, and I'm using bisexual instead of pan because while there were cases of quote-unquote transgender, they weren't very open or widespread, and the the people Anderson fell in love with were very clearly cisgender one way or another. Um, And he fell in love with women too. Oh, okay. But he didn't have any success there. So there were two girls from his youth that he claimed to have unrequited crushes on. Oh. And hold on. He even fell in love 
with Louise Collin. <gasps> Wait. Yeah. Yep. That last The name. younger sister of Edward Collin. Oh, damn. But then you got to wonder, okay, is that just a substitute for Edward? You know, we're just lucky he didn't write a fairy tale about her. Right. But there was one woman who in particular inspired two stories. Oh, okay. So in the 1830s and 40s, there was a super famous Swedish opera singer named Jenny Lind. Like, oh, that name sounds had, familiar. Mm-hmm, you probably have heard it in passing at some point somehow. Yeah. But literally, I mean, she was sought after and renowned and her voice. I mean, us, we have a record that Edison uh, made a recording of her on a phonograph disc. But okay. she was so old by that point that it'd be hard to pinpoint the actual and and the sound was so primitive as well on those original uh discs that we wouldn't be able to tell you know really what her voice was like but she was so sought after she was the she was the voice of a century okay and i just live googled her and figured out why her name is familiar she has links to pt barnum as in barnum and bailey's circus yes and so she was probably in the movie The Greatest Showman. She was, that, actually. I'm betting that's the character. Yep, that, that is. Yeah. So Ding, ding, ding. You get a cookie. Yay! So at first, ha- Anderson wrote The Nightingale as okay. a tribute to her amazing talent. Makes sense. Nightingale is a bird that sings. Mm-hmm. But when he gave her a letter confessing his love in 1844, she replied with one that blessed him as one who is like a brother to her. And so he wrote the Snow Queen. My best Arnold Horshack. Mr. Cotta, Mr. Cotta. Isn't that Frozen? It kind of. It, it's, it's a variation the, on the actual Snow Queen is very cold and cruel. Oh, okay. I'm right. going to have to find and send you a, an, a copy of Anderson's fairy tales. Because we'll do a lit crit on the Snow Queen. Yeah, we may or may not. I don't know. There aren't, there aren't many that I really want to dig into because like oh. they're all. <laughs> fucking miserable okay so if you scroll down a little you'll see her picture and she's Aww. very pretty she is she's beautiful and she was a good person and she taught other singers and she you know she really tried so she you know and i'm sure anderson wasn't the only ardent admirer she had because she married <laughs> eventually and had a couple daughters got it yeah But overall, poor Hans Christian Andersen. He was so 
desperate to be loved and to give love. And he struggled so much in repressing a queer-oriented identity when a time when queer-oriented identities were not cool. And that's pretty much, you know, it it parallels from my perspective with the Mm -hmm. upbringing that I was raised in, that you had to be one way. And Mm -hmm. If you weren't that one way, you were wrong and you were evil and you were going to burn in hell for not being that one right way. And mm-hmm. it's just, it. what do you do with that? How do you unprogram decades of that? It's, well, yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's what brings me to what I want to end on because this episode will eventually end. Um, (laughs) I want to end on a little bit better note because the original story of the little mermaid is fucking sad. Yes. But there are elements not tied to the doomed romance and the prince and whatever that keep it relevant and keep it resonating even today because it's more than just a failed romance. It's about identity and recognition and self-fulfillment and personal growth and facing down pain and challenges to be true to yourself. Mm, It's about chasing dreams and wanting to belong. And even in the end with those creepy daughters of the air, um, because are they other mermaids or what are they? Like, who are they? I totally got guardian angels. Yeah, that's, that's but what I, I also got. kind of wonder, like, if a mermaid becomes a daughter of the air because she didn't have a soul to begin with, who else in Danish folklore doesn't have a soul to become do a daughter have, of the air? Do they have wolves in Copenhagen? <laughs> Fenrir is not a son of the air. <laughs> But, you know, like even with the Daughters of the Air, it's kind of like she, you know, she still has a chance, even though that one dream passed her by. Right. She wants a soul more than anything. And then I wonder, is that her chasing her family's dream for her? No, because her family's dream is to be foam. Right, right, right. And to live and dance with them. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Because her dream is to, because even before she met the prince or right after, even though she was like attracted to him, Mm -hmm. she was questioning what happens to us after we die. Right. So, you know, it's grim, but I think part of the reason a lot of Victorian fairy tales and literature still resonates with us is because the grimness acknowledges reality in a way that we still try to sanitize. Uh, and, yes. and yet there's always this tantalizing moment of hope. And that's, that echoes what we try to do as human beings in growing and becoming better versions of who we were before, after we went through suffering. Yes. So 
That's about as positive as I can do it. And (laughs) wow, this is a long episode, but you know what? Yeah. The Little Mermaid deserves it. Yes. Yes. No, just random question. If you don't know this question off the top of your head, I probably do. Where did they come up where they, being Disney, get the name Ariel? Because I didn't see anyone with a name in Anderson's story. Nobody had a name except for the bride. All right. So the grandmother becomes Sebastian. Because she's okay. all about style. She's about having fun. People down below are much better than people up above. Got it. Yep. And Ariel is from Shakespeare. He pulled the name from Shakespeare? Yep. Are you No, kidding? not 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 him. Disney. Okay, Disney. Right, 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 right. Disney pulled the name Ariel from Shakespeare. Okay. I'll bite. Where? The Tempest. Damn it. You're going to make me watch or read that, aren't you? There hasn't really been a good movie of it. Um, I mean, maybe okay. there is, but it just hasn't. Uh, but Ariel I feel like Kim is, said there was. There was, but, oh, we have to watch A Midsummer Night's Dream. That, that watch party is going to happen. Okay. But basically, Basically, um, she's a spirit who serves the magician Prospero, and she rescues him from a tree in which he was imprisoned. Oh. Okay. And Prospero promises to grant Ariel his freedom. Hmm. And, yeah. So, uh... I forget what actually happens to her in the end, but Ariel. Okay. So here's one last thing. So Ariel was usually viewed as a male character when Shakespeare originally wrote it. But since the, you know, early, early 18th century or the 1700s, she was played by a woman. So Ariel is kind of, again, this is one of those, like, I don't know, were they trying to drop a hint? Yeah. And I'm going to copy an image and put it into the bottom of our script here. Okay. Because some people took it upon themselves to (gasps) turn Ariel into Into a male. Yep. Wow, that's stunning. It's it's really beautiful actually. It's, like it's shocking for a moment. And then you're like, yes, exactly. The longing is the longing. It doesn't matter. It yes. Yeah. <gasps> stunning. Yeah. Wow. And I'll share this image and the links in um in the yeah. show notes. Mm. But anyway, yeah, there's there's a moment where they hang on. It's actually on YouTube too. I'll I'll include the link as well. But okay. here's the uh part of our world moment. Oh, that's like my song. <gasps> yeah. Oh my god. And it's oh. you know, 
Yeah. Wow. So I'll I'll find the real YouTube link with part of our world sung uh part of your world. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Part of that world. Look, whatever. I have to feed the dogs and go to the bathroom myself. So you know what? I really have to pee. This has been a marathon episode. <laughs> yes, but the little ma- mermaid fucking deserves it. Yes. Wow. And it's so much I, I never say, knew. You know what? I have to say thank you because yes. I hated and avoided this fairy tale for so long. Oh. And, and because, you actually mentioned that yeah, earlier on. It, yeah. It made me so unhappy. Yeah. And I, doing this episode at the age I am now, gave me a chance to be like, okay, there's a way for me to work through literally my childhood trauma of reading this fairy tale and confronting the ideas of death that I didn't really even realize were disturbing me. Yep. And yeah. So you know what? This episode was exactly what it was supposed to be. So. Yep. Absolutely. We might do something more fun and a little lighter next week. Because <laughs> I don't know if I can dive into Beauty and the Beast right after oh, this one. Good Lord. No. We should do like a reading from our own stuff. Yeah. We'll do a, I've got my either a deep dive here. or a lit crit hour or something weird and offbeat. Lit crit 15. <laughs> 15 minute. <laughs> right. Literally. So, but... Thank you all yes, for if you. you have actually made it this far. And um, yeah, shitty sign off. We love yeah. you. Thank you, patrons. You know what? If anybody's listened to this point and you get this far, hit me up on Facebook. I'm going to send you something. I don't know. I'll find something in our merch store. And I'll, I'll respond to you and I'll send you something if you and need And you know what? Far. I will help you design it. And it will not be Fenrir with a mermaid tail. Yes, it will. But anyway, <laughs> we'll send you a sticker. We'll come there up you go. with something. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you, we guys. We love you guys. Thank you for listening. Bye. Yes. Bye. So that was The Little Mermaid. How many people you think are still listening? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, does it count if they're conscious or if they've fallen asleep? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. but yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think you were awfully gracious for just how much I ruined <laughs> the fairy tale. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but we unpacked a lot. We did. Yeah, we did. And, uh, you know, that, that is just a taste of the original content that you will get over on Patreon. That's right. Yes. So. Um, what else? Oh, uh, so they probably heard on the very end that we do shitty sign offs when we're on Patreon and we're kind of emulating that today on this as we're still 
getting back on the bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, but, you know, uh, watch for us next week. Uh, it's starting Pride Month. Um, I have one or two little episodes involving that that should be fun, um, which obviously will involve some divine fuckery. And, you know, maybe a hot drunk news coming up. Lots of okay. stuff. And yeah. yeah, so, you know, we could go through our socials, but just look for us at Drunk Mythology Gals. We'll pop up. Yeah, pretty much anywhere. And don't um, bother emailing. Don't email us. We don't. <laughs> I, it's probably been six months since we opened the email. <laughs> I think I opened it back in March. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, that's that's only two and a half. All right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. so just like on Patreon, because it's a Patreon episode, it's a shitty sign off. Love you. Bye. Yes. Bye. Bye.